It's a five-star podcast. Because we do it. What's What's up, everybody? Welcome back. It is episode 82 of the What's Real podcast. I am your host, Ed Demko, along with my cohort, my co-conspirator, and my fellow tag team championship partner in podcasting, the J himself, Jared Bajoris. The J, how you feeling after such a big week last week? Let me tell you something, brother. Hey, y'all. Had to throw out the initial Hogan impression because I've been watching old old school SummerSlam to get ready for uh, this year's SummerSlam, which I always do for the big pay-per-views, busting out some of that old school Hogan. Hate you. But as you can tell, just like old school Hogan, the Jay here, episode 82 of the What's Real podcast is pumped up to high hell. We're going to be talking about our live, in-person, What's Real at <laughs> AEW this past week. We got the on-site review and goddamn, just like Biggie. <laughs> We got a story to tell, hey y'all. <laughs> yeah, it's it will do a story. We have several stories exactly. to tell about our two day fucking trek to AEW. Uh, we'll talk about that, of course, later in the show. And that's not it. Uh, of course, we are going to be finishing off our review episodes four through six of the Netflix series High Score. Uh, We're going to be talking about episode two of NFL's Hard Knocks on HBO, starring the Dallas Cowboys. Uh, Thursday Night Prime is back, as long as we can physically take it, with some Van Damage, old school style. We're talking Albert Pune's Cyborg from 1989. Uh, We're going to talk some goofs and much, much more. So the J, let's just get into it. Uh, This is a big one for uh, ourselves and I guess and fellow Pittsburgh sports fans. Uh, Pittsburgh uh, Penguins uh, radio announcer and former TV announcer Mike Lang retires, uh, which is, you know, kind of a bummer because I know he sat out uh, last season because of COVID and stuff like that. Uh, But he's obviously getting a little old as well. Uh, So it's kind of a shame, basically, that it winded down, you know, that way, because I have a funny feeling that if last year would have just been normal, he would have broadcasted as normal and then retired. But, uh, you know, uh, that's 46 years in the broadcasting booth. um, And, you know, that's pretty amazing. He's 73 years old. He certainly earned a retirement. And, you know, without a doubt, I think. It's weird, too, how this happens, but, like, if you know your history of Pittsburgh sports, it's, like, Bob Prince in baseball, Myron Cope with football, and Mike Lang in hockey. Three guys extremely different, but extremely similar in the way that they would do things on broadcast, but, like, that's obviously a massive part uh, of Pittsburgh sports history as well. Yeah, the freaking COVID fucking more shit up, kind of throwing off Mike Lang's last couple years here. But uh, like you mentioned, man, well, well deserved. And uh, that's what's cool about the podcast. It's it's a time capsule. And this is a guy's voice that we literally grew up with to be grown men in our 40s here uh, now retiring. But if you're a Pittsburgher, you know, Mike Lang's voice, you know, all his classic calls. And he was a trademark of the city. To have an announcer like that, that's just another cool thing about the city to have somebody that colorful stand out in, in the NHL. You know, as far as all the broadcasters through all these years, Mike Lang is is a classic and, and a city treasure. 
Absolutely. So I, I, it's only appropriate the Jay. So I got to ask you, what's your favorite Mike Lang ism? You know, his famous I mean, goal sayings, obviously. If you're going to throw out one, I don't want to take it from you, but I got to say, because hey, Ilt, for those that don't know, specifically in a ton of our friends where I went to school in middle school and we got really close those years was an area of Pittsburgh in the suburbs called Turtle Creek. And one of his best lines because of that is Carl Arnold Slick from Turtle Creek. So you got to yeah, shout that def- one out. That's definitely my favorite too. So, I mean, they're, they're all great, obviously. Uh, and of course, Elvis has left the buildings, probably all of our favorite ones, because it usually means that the Penguins are going to get the win, uh, especially in some of the big games that he's called in the past. So uh, kudos to him. Kudos to the Pens, of course. And, uh, you know, salute him in uh, retirement at age 73. Hope he obviously gets to enjoy that a little bit. Um, but moving along here, dude, I thought this was kind of interesting. I don't know if you've seen this. I know I caught it. I'm pretty sure I sent it to you, but you know how things get lost in the ether through the week. But it looks like Darcy from uh, the last drive in we talk about here on the show all the time with Joe Bob Briggs. She's going through archives uh, and putting up old episodes of Monster Vision and things like that on their Patreon. Um, But it seems that there is a possibility that she has found a uncut 111 minute print of Toby Hooper's Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. Um, which would be around nine or ten minutes longer than any other version that's been released. Um, there's been a ton of stuff. Uh, if you followed any of this shit through the years, like I have, like a dork, um, there's a ton of stuff that have been rumored. Like I've even been to a couple, like my first Wasteland, by the way, the J was a Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 reunion. So like there's a lot of talk and you see a lot of panels and stuff like that. And they tell you about a lot of stuff that they filmed that just never made it in the movie, not realizing that they might actually find some of this stuff. But there is some pretty interesting, there's a scene of course with Joe Bob that has made it since onto, you know, uncut or I should say like, uh, you know, like deleted scenes and stuff like that. But it's interesting to see uh, what this actually might be made of, because even from my understanding is people have some work prints and stuff like that that aren't as long as this. So it could be interesting to see what they find. To answer your initial query, hey, you know, I did stumble upon this on Twitter, uh, meant to talk to you about it. So uh, as you stated initially there, vice versa, we didn't run it by each other, uh, probably meant to. Uh, but of course, especially for you, I always know you're on top of it because I think I told you before, there's times where I'm like, oh, I got to send send this to hey, you know, for some you know, possible pod topic and whatnot. And then I go to you know forward it to you or, or like we retweet it to you or personal message. And it's your tweet initially, I realized. I'm like, oh, this is hey, Ed's retweet. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, we, we said before, man, when you're talking about classics and something like Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, I know both you and I are big fans of it, of course. It's always g- cool to have something that can be more footage just to check out what it is, you know, after all these years. So as usual with things like this, I'm all for it. And it's really cool that Darcy, of all people, is the one to stumble upon it. Yeah, exactly. So that's why you go through film archives. You know what I mean? If you have the time for shit like that, do it. Um, You know, there's been companies that have started from dumpster diving film companies and shit like that. So, uh, you know, people seem to underestimate how many movies get lost. And I know that a lot of people don't care about that sort of thing, but 
you you just think that all these movies that have ever been made are still out there and in a lot of capacities they're not um i've even been privy to seeing i i want to say suspiria is one that i saw and there was another trauma one that i saw it might have been i i saw toxic avenger but i don't think it was that but the bottom line is they were telling you this is the last time this is ever screening um because like the the print's going to be destroyed after this and it's usually because the the print is in really bad condition and i hate hearing that because i mean it costs money for people to store this kind of thing um, but you're losing a piece of movie history every time something like that happens. So it kind of sucks. And, uh, you know, you want to try and save lost movies as much as you can. And I know that there's people out there that specialize in this kind of thing. But, you know, sometimes you just have to be in the right place at the right time. Exactly. And did she, did, I'm, I'm sure it's so early, they didn't say exactly what they might be doing with this or any progress if, since she if, first posted there, it. My guess is that they would put it up on the Patreon for people to check out. Um, gotcha. I don't know any other details other than that. I don't even know if they've had a chance to go through it. I've kind of looked periodically through the week since we've done the last show and when I've seen this, and I haven't seen any further updates. But I'm sure there'll be something coming because I know that she's working on this stuff pretty regularly. So that'll be kind of cool to see what they can uh, get out of that for sure. Uh, and something we're going to be talking about a lot in this show, uh, but much later on, uh, is AEW. And there was kind of a story that popped up this week about AEW that is crazy to me that people are not talking more about. Um, so currently, John Moxley does not have a match for AEW's All Out, which will take place on the 5th of September from Chicago, Illinois. Uh, Dave Meltzer gave fans an insight into AEW's potential plans for Moxley at the pay-per-view. According to Meltzer, John Moxley, who wrestled at New Japan Pro Wrestling Resurgence uh, and was later at ringside for the IWGP US title match, will be facing Hiroshi Tanahashi at All Out, which is definitely a dream match. That's kind of the words that Meltzer uh, was using, uh, explaining this. Um, so... Here, here's a direct quote from Meltzer. That's probably going to be in Chicago for All Out. I know that Moxley, there was a whole scenario built. I presume Tanahashi would win in the way that it was all set up. Uh, but this, it was Tony Khan's call. Uh, but Moxley asked Tony Khan. So I don't know the name, but obviously the name is Tanahashi. So I do know the name. Uh, of course, fucking Meltzer, the way he talks. This is a direct quote, by the way. <laughs> yeah. um, he wanted a match with a certain guy, and Tony Khan said, I will do my best to make it happen. This was his call. So this is Moxley's dream match, and that's a big one for the pay-per-view. And that's enough for Meltzer. Jesus Christ. But, yeah, that's a huge match for All Out that they haven't even announced yet. And, uh, dude, this is kind of the fun with AEW right now because you're seeing a lot of talent going back and forth between Impact and AEW and obviously we're going to get into that a little bit more uh, later on in the show as well but you know seemingly a healthy relationship with New Japan as far as wanting Moxley to continue work there and if they're sending over Tanahashi for a pay-per-view then clearly I would say they're pretty happy uh, with what their, their deal is with them because that's very much helpful of, to AEW. Yeah, you nailed it. Hey, you know, that's what I was going to mention, just how fun this is right now with AEW uh, rising here within the ranks to possibly, as we stated, you know, over and over again through the weeks with our pro wrestling talk, not true competition to WWE yet or anytime soon, but 
you know, doing their thing, carving out their lane within pro wrestling and having all these different, different relationships, which is really helping them grow and just giving them the options for some of these dream matches. And with this announcement, man, I mean, it's, it's adding to, as you mentioned, an already pretty strong pay-per-view card that we talked about off your air leading into the show here is right around the corner. You know, we're here in mid August and that's the first weekend in September is the the next uh, AEW pay-per-view all out. So right around the corner and this news just adds to my excitement to it because Moxley Tanahashi on an AEW show is going to be top notch. That's that's unreal. Hopefully this is all 100% true and goes through because I, I did hear speaking of all this from the big um, event in New Japan that this is going, um, you know, talking about in the article, Lance Hoyt was in that New Japan uh, Intercontinental Championship match against Tanahashi, and that was supposed to be a really good match. They said both Archer and Tanahashi took each other to limit to the limit, and in the end, of course, Tanahashi going over. Uh, but yeah, this is setting up what could be an amazing showdown on the AEW pay-per-view all-out between Moxley and Tanahashi. Yeah, it looks like that's going to be really cool. Uh, another AEW pay-per-view, by the way, that looks pretty strong and is going to be, it does. you know, one that you're definitely going to want to check out, at least for me anyway. So um, also real quick before we get into the SummerSlam preview, uh, a couple other things here. Uh, it looks like the WWE is interested in Olympic athlete Gable Steveson, uh, well-known wrestler. Um, I see this. I feel like they do this every Olympics where they kind of say this just to see you know where they want to go with it but like i don't know if this is the right thing for them especially with all the shit you hear about nxt and the way they're trying to develop it a little little differently uh than they did in the past so i just think it's weird that like olympic wrestlers and shit automatically get linked with wwe but that's what pretty much happens every time there's a summer summer olympics where the the u.s wrestling team have anybody on their uh of note Oh, and the thing is, this one has a little more clout uh, as Steveson is coming from Brock Lesnar country in Minnesota. So there's that. And I've seen pictures of them in the past kind of working out together. When uh, Steveson was even a little bit younger, Lesnar was uh, seen on social media kind of rolling around with him, giving him some tips and that sort of thing. So I think that gives it a little more clout. And then pretty recently, which is just a rumor thing, again, just adding the, the flames to the rumor fire, of course. But Seth Rollins was interviewed by TMZ Sports. And of course, he said, uh, you know, WWE would love to have Steveson. He seems like an incredible athlete and decent dude. And, you know, we had had some luck with Olympic gold medalists before. So why not? Of course, referencing Kurt Angle. So the chances there, I think it's way too early to tell. But it's like anything, man, they give him a tryout and he adapts well to quote unquote sports entertainment. There's always a chance for it. Yeah, it's just weird to me, especially like what we've been seeing over the last few months where like WWE shouldn't be in talent acquisition whatsoever at this point, especially with all the cuts they make and guys not being used and them kind of like scaling certain things back and, you know, like changing up course with what they're doing. Because I saw too, like, uh, remember how like a year or two ago that it looked like they were starting to set up doing like NXT territories all across the world. They've since COVID, they've kind of backed off that. They right. started the WWE NXT UK brand. And it's like, you know, like, I don't even know what the fuck that is at this point. So, uh, you know, I just don't like hearing them in, in 
any form talking about talent acquisitions because I just I'm like, you guys really aren't in the position to be worried about that, even if it is just one Olympic athlete. Like you can't manage the hundreds that you currently have under contract. So it's a bit goofy. I agree um, with that. But yeah, that's that's the thing, because um, in in the article to bleacherreport.com, it, it mentions how he appears to have a number of suitors. And of course, he's fanning some flames himself as well on his Twitter about a, you know, roughly about a week ago from here when we're recording on Gable Steve Steveson's Twitter. He did like a hand wave at Dana White and then also a hand wave at Vince McMahon. And then Dave Meltzer on a podcast called Around the Rings also mentioned that Paul Heyman has known about him long before anyone else has back to high school. And Steveson said he wants Heyman to manage him. Plus, his brother Bobby is already with WWE, and he's already been on WWE television and in the crowd at shows. So there, there is more surrounding Steveson than you know anybody else that might be mentioned in this conversation. But yeah, I, yeah. I agree with all the points you made. Hey Ed, I mean, there's still a long, you know, a lot of obstacles for him to go through uh, to the point where you know, WWE might officially sign him or anything like that. Exactly. So we'll have to see how that turns out. And just a real quick note outside of wrestling, uh, a couple things about uh, NBA Summer League, because that's kind of in full swing right now. Uh, Leangelo Ball's getting a chance with Charlotte's uh, Summer League team. Um, and a lot of people are talking about if he's going to make the team or not. And I think that's pretty much going to happen without question one way, shape or form, because his brother probably wants to play with him. And, you know, it's probably the best thing for him at this point to be paying playing with his brother. Um, But, you know, I don't I don't expect them all like they're all moderately decent players. He's the worst of them. Uh, The best of them probably plays in Charlotte anyway. And I think Lonzo is just kind of a half decent point guard in the NBA, but he fucking makes a lot of money. So, you know. We'll have to see how that turns out. But I'll also, of course, I'm going to use this as uh, an opportunity because, dude, the Knicks are fucking killing it. And Obi Toppin is averaging like 23 points a game. And I know Emmanuel quickly was averaging like 22 points a game playing point guard. Like, I'm real fucking happy where my team's at right now, even going into next season so far. Like, I'm extremely happy about the Knicks this season. Looking strong, hate y'all. And, uh, yeah, as far as Leangelo Ball, uh, you, you pretty much uh, nailed it. You know, he's the the least of the brothers talent-wise. However, I still think he can make an NBA roster. And there's stuff all over the Internet, of course, uh, talking about him signing with the Hornets, which would make sense. And, uh, you know, he's doing decent in the summer league. So, so we'll see about that. And, dude, I just wanted to bring this up because this is something we talked about a while ago on the podcast. So we're kind of getting to the point in the NFL season where we're starting to see some cuts happen for some teams. And guess who got cut today, the Jay? Who's that? I didn't catch. Tim Tebow. Just like we said, uh, there was yep. a very strong no chance. No shocker there. Hey, yo. Dude, I seen a couple of videos because I'm not going to act like I was watching Jacksonville's preseason games. That was not happening here. But I seen a couple of videos of him blocking as a tight end. And dude holy shit was this dude horrendous i mean like couldn't do it at all 
So like, I understand why he's getting cut, but like, dude, maybe for a moment, can some of us like slow down and stop thinking that like, when an athletic dude can't really fit into the NFL, that oh, he could play tight end. Like, dude, tight end's a pretty premier position right now, and it's not fucking easy to be one. It's not like 1977 where you just needed to be like a big meathead that could block. Uh, I mean, that's what that shows. And more more power to him. Uh, you know, like you said, he came in, in in great shape. He's a former NFL athlete. As we have have to state, he beat the Steelers in the playoffs that that year. So, uh, is is yeah. what it is. But yeah, no, you know, we did call it no big surprise. I mean, that would have been a very very difficult transition. Um, not only going from that big of a change of position within professional football from quarterback to tight end, but on top of that, him you know being older in age and not playing NFL football for years. I mean, that was a tall order, even for a, a hell of an athlete like Tim Tebow, which this cut shows. So uh, again, we weren't too surprised at that. It would have been, you know, more of a surprise. I would definitely say if the opposite happened and he made the team as a tight yeah. end. So <laughs> no, yeah. no, no shocker. Absolutely. So uh, before we're gonna t- we take a commercial break, we're gonna break down for you guys SummerSlam. So here is a preview of SummerSlam 2021 with a big change happening. Uh, something that we don't really see very often for WWE pay-per-views because it's going to be taking place Saturday night, August 21st, um, which is, you know, Saturday night pay-per-view for WWE is pretty strange, but that's happening from Allegiant Stadium in the Las Vegas suburb of Paradise, Nevada. Uh, They're expecting about 60,000 plus fans for the event. Um, So let's get into it. The J here is the card. And boy, some of this shit is just mind blowing. All (laughs) over the place, man. Yeah, it really is. So uh, first up, we are going to see a match that was confirmed on television last night. And that is the WWE Raw Raw Tag Team Championship is going to be on the line as AJ Styles and Omos defend those titles against the team of Randy Orton and Riddle, a.k.a. RK Bro. Uh, what do you think about this one, the Jay? You think this because I know that they've been I don't know how much you've paid attention, but they've had a lot of singles matches and stuff the last few weeks on TV. So they've been kind of building this up and they're kind of doing this thing where like it looks like Orton can't RKO almost. So you, you kind of know where that's heading to. Yeah. Yeah. I, I This is classic. WWE fodder, if you will, you know, it's not going to be bad. It's the usual thing that we say, man. It's that, that mid-grade mediocre stuff that you almost like would rather it be so bad. It's kind of funny and cause you know, it's not going to be great and it's just going to be mediocre. You know, and I see that and I, I haven't minded AJ and almost as a team. We've talked about that. They protect almost pretty well. He's paired up with AJ right now. For you know, an obvious reason, AJ's able to bump and, and teach him the ropes, pun intended. So, so yeah, I mean, this this won't be bad. AJ will be doing most of the heavy lifting as they do, and then as you mentioned, hey, they got the storyline built in here with if a uh, RKO will happen to Omo. So we'll have to see there. But I'm I'm sure as as you were alluding to, it's going to be pretty obvious that that's going to be the big uh, build up, and then he's going to hit the RKO somehow on Omos out of nowhere. Yeah, and I, as far as predictions go, since they're doing this, and I know how much the WWE loves to do this, my guess is AJ Styles eats the pin in this match. We get new tag team champions, and then we're going to have that deal of like the tag team champions that kind of sort of don't get along and are super weird relationship, and 
probably going to get that for a while. Uh, and I think that there's we're probably going to see a time period where maybe like AJ Styles is off TV or something and almost is kind of getting branched out to maybe doing his own thing. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely what they're going to eventually go for. That's why he's doing this tag run just to get him, you know, used to how things go on TV and all the different things and varying movie moving parts that go with all that. But I, I agree with you. I see Riddle. Uh, getting the win over AJ with like Omos and, and Randy Orton being tied up or maybe like, you know, he's not the legal man and Orton hits the RKO and then Riddle goes over AJ. Good call. Next up is a match that I couldn't fucking care less about. And I'm talking about Eva Marie with Dewdrop, fucking ridiculous versus yeah, Alexa Dewdrop. Bliss. I, I'll just be honest. I don't give a shit about this match. I have no idea who's going to win because I don't care. And it's just more garbage that they have to throw on pay-per-view. I, know, I don't know if it's a, a pun or not hate you up, but Alexa Bliss is in complete limbo with her character right now with the release of Bray Wyatt. And it, she's just a, a mess of a character, in my opinion. And Eva Marie just never caught on as hot as she is. I have fully admitted ETA for those that know, but other than that, yeah, I can just skip over that match. And unfortunately for the women here, I'll do respect, but for the J, this is the, the proverbial get up and get some chips match. Yep. Couldn't call that one better myself. Uh, also in mid card purgatory, if you will, uh, is our next match. So this is a singles match. And of course, Veer and Shanky are banned from ringside i'm sure nobody knows what the fuck that means i barely know because i watched last night a little bit uh, <laughs> but but drew mcintyre facing off against his former tag team partner jinder mahal uh, i expect this to be pretty quick and easy for drew mcintyre to get the w other than that i don't expect much yeah this is kind of the the place where we were hoping drew wouldn't fall with his big, you know, year plus run in the main event picture and especially with the championship. And now that Bobby Lashley kind of took over as the raw champion and that's what happens in WWE, man, big roster, not too many slots, not a ridiculous amount of TV time. Drew McIntyre's in, you know, basically a mid card match here, unfortunately for him. So it's going to be interesting to see if he could pull himself out of this, you know, mid card kind of scenario moving forward uh, as, as we move into the fall you know, and possibly eventually mania season where he's at. That, that's what I'm looking at with Drew. Cause uh, I was, I was liking where he was, you know, we talked about it. We were never huge on him for like the size big guys, but I really thought he could go. My biggest problem always been his characters kind of yep. iffy kind of bland. But other than that, I like drew a lot. So yeah, this is a big test the next few months for him. And here on SummerSlam, a portion of the card that in my opinion, he doesn't want to be, I mean, it's a fine slot for him for now, you know, to, to work and get a match against his former partner and his boy gender uh this will probably be a good match you know depending on the time and the usual wwe uh disclaimer shit but other than that yeah this is a, a kind of a weak spot for drew to be in from where he was coming from recently and i assume you you say he gets the w on this one as well yeah i see drew going over here especially if you know they're doing the storyline with mahal's guys being banned and all that they're gonna do something there but i say you see drew getting through it and going over Next up is the WWE United States Championship match. And I think this is one of the dark horse matches on this this card uh, that might surprise people uh, as a little bit of a show stealer. And I'm talking about Sheamus, the United States champion, defending against Damian Priest. Um, th this has the matchup here because I uh, last night on Raw, they did a kind of thing where um, 
Sheamus was commentating during his match, and uh, Priest ended up winning his match by using the bro kick. So it's going to obviously about be a battle of the bro kicks here, and I think that it's kind of set up perfectly for Damian Priest to get the United States Championship. Two big dudes going at it. Definitely like the matchup. I think this is going to be hard hitting. As you mentioned, hey, Ale could be a show-stealing type, again, dependent on the time. But I yep. think, you know, here on SummerSlam, they're going to get some decent time with the, the U.S. championship involved. So from here on out, of course, we're going to go through it. But other than maybe a blemish that we'll talk about, uh, there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven matches left we're going to be talking about. All of them are solid from this point forward, starting with this one. But but yeah, these two big guys, I, th- I see this being real stiff and hard-hitting, and I think this could be a really good match. All right. Now I'm going to be kind of skipping around here on our list uh, due to importance in my mind, and I think you probably yeah, would call. agree with me on this. Uh, so yep. next up, we have the WWE SmackDown Tag Team Championship up for grabs as the champions, the Usos, Jay and Jimmy, defend against Ray and Dominic Mysterio. Um, definitely fine with this match. I liked what I've seen out of these guys so far. Uh, I think this will definitely be positioned on the card to have, you know, probably like 10 minutes or so, maybe 12 minutes, which I think is perfectly fine for these two teams to get in a pretty solid match. Uh, nothing too mind blowing. And I don't see it being bad. I just think it's going to be a fun and easy way to spend 10 minutes for the tag belts. And of course I expect the Usos on this one to keep. I concur with everything you said. Hey, you ought to get that out of the way. think it's going to be decent. The two things I would add, one, uh, I'm just kind of disappointed in the freshness of it because these teams have been feuding for weeks now, over a month. Yeah, the booking here does feel a little bit lazy, like they couldn't come up with something better, and they were like, ah, just do the tag match again with that. Which, which, great minds, because which was my next and final point regarding this match and slot. None of the matches on SummerSlam have a stipulation unless you consider the the McIntyre Mahal you know his guys are banned from ringside other than that there are no stipulation matches on this card and I think due to the lack of freshness here and these guys going at it a lot on Smackdown over the past month plus that this would have been the perfect match to have something whether it was a ladder or you know pretty much anything any stipulation here and now that could still happen, of course, because there is a SmackDown that happens before. Card subject to change. Hey, it, exactly. But yeah, I'm kind of with you or like, you know, I don't know exactly what would have been the best way or dude, even if you just do the laziest thing possible and go like tornado tag, you know what I mean? Like that's what I mean. Just, it, it could have used anything. Exactly. Yes. So, so something there would have been good. But yeah, I think, do you think the Usos keep here as well? Yeah, with everything going on, I don't I don't see them flip flopping the title changes like that. I, I see them keeping and and again possibly they they have been teasing. I don't know if what you've caught somewhat teasing some semblance, you know, real light right now, but a little bit of dissension between Ray and Dominic. Yeah, and it does kind of feel too like I don't know if you get this sense or not, but they're they're looking to make Ray the heel here, like his son which would be neat. fucking up. Yeah, that's yeah. I, I like that instead of that doing could be a like good the, story the prick kid that just won't listen to his pro dad like yeah make his dad an asshole and that's that's cool too because it'll it'll put the sympathy stuff on dominic and it's also going to show maybe a different side of ray that we haven't seen the entire time he's been in WWE. i was gonna say when which is shit when's forever. the last time ray yeah when's the last time he's been heel and I mean, dude like dec- decade plus or something and i don't know how you feel about this but like old ray or not like i'm down for having more ray mysterio on wwe Hell programming yeah. like and the more ray the better he's a fucking 
fucking all-time great to me i will never because dude that's and i'll i'll put him in that category too that people don't realize the jay just like i used to say about john cena when ray mysterio's gone man motherfuckers are gonna miss his ass because i know i will so uh for sure uh, now, this is the last non-title match of the show that we're, we're going to be talking about. And, dude, this one is one that I've been looking forward to probably the longest out of any match on this show. And I'm talking about Edge versus Seth Rollins. I don't know why. I'd, I'll be honest. I think these two got paired together because both of them want to work together. And both of them were like, dude, we can have a fucking match so this oh, yeah. is I don't think they'd be doing this for storyline purposes. They're doing this to deliver at SummerSlam and give you a really, really good match. Yeah, I think it was Edge that, that tweeted like 15 years in the making or something like that and like showed like yep. some past or no, he said seven years in the making. Edge Rollins finally pulled it up. So yeah, this this is gonna be a barn burner, man. It, it's almost like, you know, one dude from the prior generation against the dude from this generation that are kind of identical in a lot of ways just their work rate the way they do things well, dude, it's, it's kind of like the looking at a mirror match and then think about this for how weird this is dude so rollins got his start in wwe with the shield edge got his start in the wwe with the brood another trio it's like edge made his name as like one of the greatest tag team wrestlers of all time Ed, and Rollins made his name by basically turning on the shield and then doing the whole money in the bank thing. Like they, and Edge is the originator of the money in the bank thing. So like, there's a lot of similarities there, with these yeah, two a guys. Lot of parallels. It's, it's pretty neat and it can really work into the storyline. And dude, I gotta say, I almost don't know who wins this because first off you think, okay, well, Edge kind of needs a win because he really hasn't gotten much since he's returned a few times. He probably hasn't even won a match since he won one of his matches against Orton when he originally came back last year. Um, but at the same time, I don't know if I see Seth Rollins losing either because previously the whole storyline getting into this match was he's the next guy up for Roman. It shouldn't be fucking Edge or it shouldn't be any of these dudes. It should be him. So I really don't know where they're going with this storyline as far as a winner in this match goes. And frankly, maybe they do it where there isn't a winner. I don't personally think Edge needs to win now, no matter what. He's obviously already a Hall of Famer. And Rollins is still on his prime run. You know, he's still in his prime. Uh, I don't particularly like his heel gimmicks like current run all that much right now the way it's oh, going come on the jay i love the drip god that's shit yeah that's, i mean i love that shit that's there's the parts of it that, Dude, that are funny like and he's definitely years. yeah he's definitely entertaining he still has to to get me over a little bit however all that said my point is uh to what you're saying with uh who we're gonna pick going over here and it being a toss-up i would lean towards going with Seth Rollins. Okay. Then you know what? I'm just going to, I'll go with edge just for gamesmanship just here. Yeah. Okay. You know, cause I really don't know which, like I don't favor one over the oh, other. I could truly go either way. Yeah. So it's, it's going to be interesting to see. I don't know why dude, but regardless of who wins this match, I just have a funny feeling that this doesn't end here. And there's a strong possibility of whatever the next pay-per-view is that we get some sort of a stip match between them two. Cause I don't think they're done yet. Right. Yep. So we'll have to see how that turns out. Now, the rest of the evening and the rest of the segment 
is all about gold. So let's just talk about this one. They've been fucking meandering through the booking of this whole fucking thing. It's just it's beyond me how stupid they are when it comes to booking stuff. And of course, I'm talking about the triple threat match for the WWE Raw Women's Championship, which is champion Nikki A.S.H., versus charlotte flair versus rhea ripley um i don't mind nikki i think she's doing a good job at the gimmick um i love charlotte i think she's fantastic but i don't like the way that she's currently being booked and like i said before dude with that tarantino quote from the book once upon a time in hollywood rhea ripley is very 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 okay Good calls, and we we've always said as pro wrestling nerds our whole lives, never big on the triple threat matches, just just the dynamics of it overall. I mean, there's been some great ones. Don't get me wrong, I can still enjoy them, but going into it, you know, the Nikki Ash character, I'm still not sold on or big on. Don't really know what that's fully about yet, and, and I've been catching some things here and there. Uh, as you mentioned, you got to put it in there. Work weight, weight rise. Charlotte and Rhea adds a lot in. Nikki does her thing. So I'm sure it will be fine, but it's not going to be that show-stealing women's match on the big show that you might be hoping for. You know, they kind of dropped the ball on that with this matchup, I feel, although there's another one on the card we'll get into. So, so yeah, this, this one's going to be kind of up in the air on the usual things. Again, storyline, time, what they're doing moving forward, that sort of thing. And I think the only thing here that really makes much booking sense, and I'm not saying they're going to do it, is that you you have the dust settle and Nikki's somehow still the champion. Otherwise, I just don't see the point of interjecting her in this whole thing from the beginning. Because I think that Rhea and Charlotte could have had more than an interesting feud over the course of a month instead of just kind of shitting it off on TV and doing like shitty lazy finishes for everything so i mean am i am i wrong is that is that how you're thinking through this too that like somehow when the dust settles that nikki's still going to be champion or do you see them kind of okay we'll give Rhea another run like because i don't think Rhea's really she wasn't any good as the champion she's not going to be any good now and what do you need to give charlotte a 57th run with the belt again and to have her lose it in another week like you normally do every time you give it to her or what Right, when she just had it. Yeah, I'm with you because that just goes to that flip-flopping the title. I mean, Ripley had it not too long ago. Charlotte won it. Nikki cashes in. If Nikki loses it now, I mean, talk about flip-flopping and diluting their what they consider their main women's title there on Raw. So I would hope, uh, as you have been mentioning, that when the dust settles, Nikki Ash uh, somehow gets over. And there's a lot of things they could do with it being a triple threat as far as the storyline goes with doing that and, and getting her a clean win without ruining anybody else's character with the loss, that sort of thing, you know, like Rhea taking Charlotte out and Nikki coming in, you know, any number of things like that, that they can do. So hopefully that's the case. And Nikki just keeps the belt for now. Absolutely. So we'll have to see how that all settles out uh, at SummerSlam. Now, next up, we're going to be talking about the singles match for the WWE championship. And of course I'm talking about champion Bobby Lashley facing off against the returning Goldberg. Uh man, this one is I don't really want to see this match. Um I think that it's a gigantic failure unless Lashley just flat out beats him, which I think there is a possibility of that. 
Um, but yeah, I just don't, I, I don't have any interest in seeing Goldberg back in the ring again. I don't really think he offers anything other than maybe a cool entrance or something like that. And this is how you're treating one of your main championship titles. And I, I think that it does a massive disservice to Lashley, uh, unless he just kind of steamrolls over Goldberg here. Which I doubt. We, we kind of summed it up. Uh, yeah, I mean, we pretty much summed it up when when this was first announced and Goldberg came back. Uh, exactly how this match is going to go because we already know that's that's the thing about modern Goldberg. It's really cool that he still looks the part, that he's in shape, the shape that he's in for his age, and everything else that goes with that, and that he can have a, a believable five minute match. Therein lies the problem. You're not going to see him doing not you know not like Goldberg ever did like anything ridiculous in the past like some twenty minute half hour matches consistently. That's not the type of wrestler or character he is. Don't get me wrong, but nonetheless, when you know that strongly he can only go for five ten minutes, there's not too much to get excited about in my opinion. And like you said, to help build your champion and storylines and things like that, you would have Lashley just destroy him. That would be cool, but I don't see Goldberg coming back for something like that. He still like wants to, his son, you know, to see him wrestle and things. So I see them trying to put together the best match they can, and this being like a seven ten minute, yeah, kind of match. Yep, I totally agree there. And I'm just gonna go with the uh, sake of sanity's uh, sake here. Uh, but Bobby Lashley retains, please. Yeah, I'm with you there. I don't I don't see them doing anything with Goldberg in the championship this time. Uh, now, next up, we have a match that's been announced, but there is some potential, from what I understand of it, not happening at all. And I'm talking about the WWE SmackDown Women's Championship match between the champion Bianca Belair and Sasha Banks. Now, I've heard this recently. There was a weekend house show, I guess, where they were both not on the show because of, as it was announced, unforeseen circumstances. Um, of course, I've seen a little bit of speculation uh, that somebody potentially has COVID. I don't know if that's true or not either. Um, or there may be a, a kind of an undisclosed injury. But we've kind of seen this thing a lot more from WWE in, in more recent times. Uh, remember, uh, Bray Wyatt just disappeared from TV for you know, pretty much no reason. Uh, Randy Orton uh, was off TV for an extended period of time. They didn't really come forward and give you a reason why and then he was just back um and then you're kind of seeing it uh maybe potentially here with both of these superstars and we've seen sasha have little bouts like this too um so i don't have really anything other than to report that so we'll just assume that this match is going to happen uh and if it does uh i think that there's a strong chance that this will be one of the better matches on the card and uh, I really don't know how they would book this one either. I'm just going to assume that Bianca would retain since Banks just turned heel uh, or there'll be some sort of a non-finish here. Maybe Sasha gets disqualified or something like that. Yeah, I mean, they had an excellent, excellent match at WrestleMania. We love that match. And they haven't, you know, they haven't really overdone it since then with each other. So this is only like, you know, the really second big match on the big stage here. So I'm all for it. You know, maybe not being as fresh with a brand new matchup like it was on 37. You know, Bel Air Banks 2 is nothing that I, you know, shudder at him. I think it's going to be good. And like you said, one part of the storyline, uh, Banks turning heel, 
kind of helps it because at least that's something different. You know, of course, the first time they met, it was kind of the mutual respect thing, passing of the guard kind of storyline. Now, now it's kind of amped up with Banks being heel, and you know, she is pretty fresh because she she made her first appearance on uh, SmackDown towards the end of July for the first time since Mania. Yep. So she's nice and fresh. And then you know, ended up going going heel. So I am interested in it, and I'm hoping it happens because I think again, it's going to be a a great return match here from us from their WrestleMania matchup. And I, I completely agree with you summing up uh, the picks that Belair is either going to go over or they're going to do something with Sasha Banks being a heel. They kind of just gets the match thrown out uh, like you alluded to. And I like it too, because even though it's not so much of a fresh match, it still keeps it fresh because with her being the heel, we're going to see a totally different type of match than we saw at WrestleMania. So Exactly. You know, or, you know, they might just use that as the, the thing to the impetus to push Sasha over the top. Like, well, she came at this the end of the match this time as a heel, not trying to be, you know, completely, you know, fan friendly here and sportsmanship. And that's what won her the title. So it, it'll be interesting. But I do think Bianca keeps. So we'll have to see how that turns out as well. And we will next week on the show. And of course, we get to our main event, the match that they've been selling this show on. That is the WWE Universal Championship match with Roman Reigns defending his title against a returning John Cena. Uh, There was a really good segment on SmackDown last week where they did kind of like a face-off interview and, you know, Cena got in his ass a little bit. And I like that because it's like, you know, don't forget, John Cena was pretty good on a fucking mic, too. Like, it wasn't like he was a schlub. So, uh, but that match, I think, is going to be pretty fun. Uh, I don't see John Cena beating Roman Reigns. I see him putting up a pretty good fight, uh, but I think the uh, the Tribal Chief keeps his title after this one. And it's going to be one of the better matches on the show, I believe. For sure, man. I'm looking forward to this. Uh, again, not the freshest of matchups. They've feuded in the past and things like that, but out of sight, out of mind. Hey, you know, it's been a while and Cena hasn't been on TV a while. And Roman Reigns is a completely different monster um, right now. The way they're booking him, the way he is with Heyman. We've talked about it week in and week out how much we love Roman Reigns' current run and throwing Cena in there. As much as I did initially, what they looked like they were doing, they swerved us with Finn Balor with the fresh matchup. Uh, now, now that we're we're in with Cena, I'm all in as well. I'm for it, and I think this is going to be a, a great match. I definitely think this is going to be the main event, of course, as well, the whole show. And I see, as you mentioned, the domination of Reigns' reign continuing and Roman Reigns closing out SummerSlam as still WWE Universal Champion. So, yeah, I mean, if uh, everything breaks down the way that it, that it looks, uh, I think that it's safe to say that this is going to be a pretty solid card. So uh, tune in next week, guys, and we'll give you a full rundown of everything that happened at SummerSlam 2021 on next week's show, episode 83. Or, yeah, 83. So we are going to take a quick commercial break. So stay there, guys. We'll be back right here on the What's Real podcast. Want to advertise on the What's Real podcast? Send us an email today. Just title your email ads at whatsrealpod at gmail.com. For cheap, easy, and affordable rates, contact us today. Again, that's whatsrealpod at gmail.com. Would you like to advertise? Send us an email today. And we're back. 
back and we are going to get in the last three episodes, episodes four, five, and six of the Netflix series High Score, all about the history of video games. So where we left off last week, we talked a little bit about, of course, the original boom with Space Invaders and Pac-Man. Uh, we also talked about uh, basically the creators of Donkey Kong and some of the people behind music in video games. And we looked at an episode called Role Players, all about uh, Dungeons and Dragons and how adventure and role playing game kind of uh, influenced video games and computer games at the time. So here we are on episode four, this episode appropriately titled This is War. Sega Genesis console and its speedy new character Sonic hit the market and Electronic Arts kicks off a partnership with football legend John Madden. So I got to say for this one, I really didn't like the first half of this one, all about like basically Sega and Nintendo and the whole thing facing off. And unfortunately, it was because recently I seen a documentary called Console Wars that's a full documentary about this. So I feel like this had nowhere near the type of information that did. So I kind of was like brushed off at this point. But they did completely bring me back, however, whenever they were talking about the Madden football stuff. That was fucking fantastic. Yeah, that was cool. We don't get too much of that. But yeah, I mean, I'm with you. I think we kind of mentioned it in our review of episodes one through three that the high score docuseries is more or less an almost like VH1 style documentary. Remember those like, yep. you know, everyone like I love the 80s. And yep. Those kind of things. It's, it's, it's almost along those lines than if it was like a very hardcore look into the video game industry. And I think, again, we mentioned some of the reviews that I had read just to get some other opinions uh, for for my review on here and to talk about a little bit, just, you know, get some varying um, different opinions and different perspectives in reading through it. I mentioned to you that a lot of them kind of did say that, that it wasn't really too focused and it was kind of like, like scattered, which they kind of do. They kind of jump in and out of the stories they're telling and kind of go back and forth sometimes, yep. which I didn't have the biggest problem with. I could follow it because I know this subject matter so well, but I, I could see somebody being more casual, kind of getting lost at times. And then of course they do the usual Netflix thing to try to keep viewers. I'm sure they have some sort of checklist that they have to cover making these things for Netflix to not lose people's attention. And mostly the attention span of, of a generation one or two under us, hey, our old asses, where they have those like random anecdotes where they use like animation, like yep. out of you know talking about some random boardroom meeting, and they don't necessarily need that kind of stuff in this, you know. But when they are on point within this, they're on point, uh, like what you're saying, where uh, the the Sonic stuff was cool. Like I, I like the story about the creator of Sonic and how he came up with it. He actually went to Central Park in New York City and had three characters that he was just showing random strangers to get feedback on like what route he was going to kind of take for the main character. And uh, of course the majority of the people out of the three characters picked the character that would become Sonic the Hedgehog and they tell that whole story. So I was interested in that. Uh, but yeah, it was, you know, compared to the Madden talk, like you said, that, that definitely perked me up because of my love for Madden and being somebody I, I always say, and I'll say it here on the podcast, I've had Madden every year since Madden 93. Same. 
Yeah, that's pretty much to twenty. I'm, you know, going on twenty twenty one, which is crazy to think about. I might have skipped a few later ones, but like, yeah, I was a early adapter of Madden football because I would always try and play the football games and stuff that they had because I loved shit like Tech Mobile as a kid. Um, but dude, just real quick before we move on from the Sega talk, uh, it's weird, man, because this is a time period that me and you both were gamers, probably more than casually at the time, and. I'd never had a Sega Genesis. Now I would play Sega at other friends' houses and stuff. I was more of a Super Nintendo guy and I'll tell you why. And it's funny how I see these documentaries and stuff talking about the systems. Um, the one thing that I'll say is there was a time period where the Sega Genesis was faster. Like the, the action on the screen was faster, but I never thought the, that the graphics were better, not even close. And I felt that eventually the Super Nintendo games that came out on that also came out on the Sega Genesis were significantly better on the Super Nintendo. It's weird kind of seeing how like they just have this whole revisionist history, like where everybody was like Sega's better. And it's like it really wasn't like that. I mean, there was a lot of people that liked Sega. There were some people that liked both systems. But it's like I was significantly always there was never a point where I was a Sega person whatsoever. I'm right with you, hey, I was always loyal to my brands, uh, even as ridiculous as that may may be. I was always a Nintendo guy in, until a certain age. And, and at the time, of course, there was no way my parents were going to let me have two different yeah. video game consoles yep. anyway. So I remember, uh, as we always do, shouting out our buddies, J.P. Finnerty, that uh, was a childhood friend, lived in the, the neighborhood down the street from me that I hung out a lot, had a Sega. So I would play Sega over there a lot. And that was good enough for back then. But to your point, yeah, I was always a, a Nintendo into Super Nintendo guy, you know, eventually the N64, et cetera. And I, I'm with you, man. I always thought it, the, the graphics were better. The exclusive games that they would have, like the Mario games and things, I liked better. I, I, I've always thought Sonic was cool, but it wasn't cool enough to worry about getting a Genesis or anything like that. Yep. And full circle, being an adult, as I sit here at the uh, – the what's real studios here in uh, Mount Lebo in the office behind me. Hey, you know, I have the retro console versions, you know, packed with games of both a super Nintendo and a Sega Genesis. So that's pretty funny. Full circle there. Yeah. Imagine having something like that whenever you're 12, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> oh, it'd be the best thing ever. Uh, yeah. It's good. It's good stress relief at times when I, you know, you know me, I, Rarely take breaks, but yeah, every once in a while, I'll just fire up a game, play a level or something just to get my mind off work for a second. You know, sometimes you have those days. So it's cool to have, uh, you know, on respondents here. And uh, also the stuff on this about Madden was great. Um, everything from uh, the, the gentleman that uh, got a job with them by basically hounding everybody into giving him a job. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, that was a cool story. And, dude, that's the guy that's responsible for, you know, creating black players on the game because there was a time where they can only be one color or another. And I remember when they did that, it kind of made the game feel more authentic at the time because yep. it looked more representative of the actual game that you saw on television. So, dude, like I and, and I love the story that the creator tells about taking the, the train ride with Madden and how Madden would not even hear of a potential seven on seven game because it was significantly easier to do it graphically and how Madden said absolutely not. So they basically went to work and tried to make it as realistic as professional football. So, you know, that's something that, dude, I think you could speak on this, too, because like you said, like we were playing very early on. 
Uh, Madden won you over by the just sheer realism of the game itself and how it played and how it looked and the things that you could do on the game that you couldn't do on others and how Madden was tremendously uh, devoted to like it taught an entire it at this point it's it's taught several generations about football plays and how certain things work in football compared to what people thought previously to that so uh you know i love madden i still play madden to this day it's one of my favorite games of all time without a doubt i've probably purchased madden more times than i've ever purchased any game series that there's ever been in the history of video games so i think right there alone shows you kind of the power in that you know Exactly. Yeah, it's it's cool. And, and again, as we mentioned from episodes one through three of High Score, it's the same with uh, these episodes four through six, closing out this initial limited series on Netflix that it sparks that nostalgia. And, and that's what helps this a lot, because as kind of off as it can be with how it was put together, like I was talking about a little earlier, it, it's still the fact that at the end of the day, it's taken me back to times of, of childhood and some really good memories. So cheesy or not man it, it was cool because because yeah like like i said I, I just remembered the first time i got madden for christmas and like getting an interception like pick six and running up to my mom like she cared you know <laughs> like mom i just gotta pick pick six and madden but it's you know those those type of things and and yeah i think that's a cool thing to think about being 41 year old men i'm a little little ahead of you hey you're still 40 so i don't want to age you too much but yeah like all these years later still playing every year and seeing the entire genesis, pun intended, the entire evolution of the Madden series from year to year. We're two guys that you can talk to that have played it again since the early to mid-90s there to it being 2021 now. And, and myself, uh, and I'm sure like you, you mentioned, it being in the same boat of picking up this year's iteration of Madden as well, which is something I'm sure we'll talk about on the podcast. Too. Absolutely. So uh, next up was episode five. It was titled Fight. Street Fighter and Mortal Kombat give rise to the head-to-head -head fighting genre, but the increasing graphic violence in games brings controversy. So, of course, I like this me too, and I'll tell you why. Because first off, I love these fighting games. Uh, again, we were both there uh, as friends too at the time uh, when these games were kind of exploding, and I was a fucking fanatic for Street Fighter 2 and Mortal Kombat, and dude, by the time Mortal Kombat 2 came out, like, my brain was exploding with this stuff. Like, I, I pun intended on that one, I fucking loved fighting games during the first run that they had. I distinctly remember you and I talking about that when they announced and we found out, like, in, in Nintendo Power, one of the video games, because, again, pre-internet days and things like that, and we found out that Mortal Kombat 2 for Super Nintendo was going to include the, the full-on gore yep. fatalities for the first time because it was controversial. Mortal Kombat 1 Sega Genesis uh, version had the full gore violent fatalities and Super Nintendo dumbed them down. They didn't have the the blood in the, in the uh, Nintendo version, which was just weird. And then they finally made the the announcement that they were just going to give it the mature rating and things like that. We were just ecstatic. And, and like you said, man, looking back on the chronological uh, of my personal gaming, the chronology, I should say, of my personal gaming, Mortal Kombat 2 is, is up there for the time. You know, yeah. going back for that time and getting my hands on that game, dude, as a kid. Yeah, just to, to reminisce there is awesome. Yeah, that was one that I could not wait to get for Super Nintendo 
Um, the original one for me was a major issue in the arcades. Um, I was spending a lot of money playing Mortal Kombat back then. And like, and I was fucking good at it too. Like I could play on the same quarter for a while at the local arcade, like that type of shit. Cause I was that way with street fighter too, as well. So, I mean, those games first came to me through the arcade and then like, that's kind of how it was when we were at that age, games would come out in the arcade and then they would get adapted to all the home consoles, uh, you know, like the hits. So that's yeah, they get the console port. It, yeah, because movie it was basically like how movies used to be, like the arcade was the theater, and then you know the consoles was home video, and that's pretty much how that used to run. And uh, you know those are games that were a huge deal to me. Like, dude, even the original Mortal Kombat without the blood was still a big deal to me, because like I just loved the game that much. And you know there were certain things that were still fun about the game that I still enjoyed. It made me better at Mortal Kombat anyway. So like I'd really fuck some shit up at the arcade after that. Uh, but like you know the key to that too. Back in the days, like once I get all the move set shit memorized, it, barely anybody's gonna be able to fuck with me at this game because I know how to do everything. So you're never gonna beat yeah. me. Like it's good luck. Unless you found other people that were just as good at it as you. And then it was really fucking fun. But yeah, I had tons of great memories playing those in the arcade, playing them with my friends. Like those, those were always good games to like talk shit and just fuck with each other over. So like, yeah, they were always, it was fun to play it by yourself. It was fun to play with friends. It just was great. You know what I mean? Big fan of that series. So, uh, and this episode was, you know, too, they, <laughs> they mentioned night trap, which was a game that I remember never playing but i remember reading a right lot about i, I remember yeah i remember hearing about it and yeah that part was was interesting to me and I, I just wanted to say before we get too far away from it hey yo, we'll get back to night trap but uh, that was one cool thing about the documentary as well in this particular episode they did have the creators you know one of the main creators of street fighter and street fighter 2 uh the Jap japanese gentleman and he told a cool story about like the bathhouse thing. He's like, it was so Japanese. We would have gaming and bathhouses and I'd play video games and then go take a bath. Yep. And he, he said eventually that got into Street Fighter with E Honda. The one character is like a sumo guy and his his level was like a the backdrop was a bathhouse, which was funny. I never knew that. And then, of course, they had uh, Tobias, uh, one of the co-creators with uh, Ed Boone of the Mortal Kombat series as well. So I, I think that was worth mentioning that they had both of these guys as talking heads in this, which definitely elevated the, the episode. And, dude, there was something that a lot of people uh, probably just it glossed over them. But I felt like Tobias gave everybody the formula of how to do this. And he said, like, what they did was they didn't want to copy off Street Fighter at all. So they literally looked at Street Fighter and they were like, okay, they have cartoony fighters. We're going for realistic digital. They have cartoony violence. We're going to go for the blood and guts. Like, and that's what made those games exclusive and successful because they didn't, like, you could like both of them. It wasn't like playing the same game. They were totally different games in that regard. In the way you do things, the point of like in Street Fighter 2, it was always the point combos. That's what you were going for. And in Mortal Kombat, it was obviously to do like crazy fatalities or later on it would be like, you know, friendships and babalities and all the other crazy shit that they had. But like they, because of that, they were you played the two games totally differently and they're both fighting games. 
yeah, it's a really cool contrast to see. And, and as you were saying, it, it all led into a pretty cool part of this episode where they go to when they, they called these congressional hearings with one of the governors bringing video guy, uh, video game violence to the forefront uh, of the public and all the way to Congress. And the two games that they were using as prime examples of how terrible the video games and video game violence was for the youth of America at that time in the 90s was Mortal Kombat. And then as Hey had mentioned a little bit earlier, this crazy game called Night Trap. <laughs> Dude, one of the funniest things was there was a part where like a senator, they showed him talking in one of the, the hearings. Yeah, Lieberman, I think it was, yeah. Senator Lieberman. Well, the one guy was Lieberman. like, he was like, you know, you're just an irresponsible parent if you buy this game for your child as a gift. And meanwhile, I I got Mortal Kombat as a gift for my birthday one year. And it's like, dude, you you know my parents as well as anyone. That's the furthest furthest thing from the truth. But I just got a loud chuckle out of that because it's like, no, my parents were not irresponsible because they let me buy more. They just knew I wasn't a moron. It wasn't going to like try and stab my friends and do stupid shit. So uh, but it's just funny that but dude, Night Trap was kind of an anomaly. Uh, when we were young, like you read a lot about it in the magazines. Like I knew it had Dana Plato from from different strokes in it, um, stuff like that. But like it wasn't is it, it became a much bigger deal once all this kind of congressional shit happened because it wasn't even a successful game. Not many people had the Sega CD system that you played the game on. So like- That's what I was gonna say. That was the main thing, it was for Sega CD. And that wasn't a, a big selling console. Yeah, so they're freaking out about a game that barely any kids had, because I don't know if you remember or not, Sega CD was expensive as fuck. So- Exactly. <laughs> like you did, I didn't even know anybody that had one, did you? Nope, and that's saying a lot, no. I did not. Yeah, and it's like, I don't even... We know a lot of goofs. And I don't even remember talking to, like, some of my friends that are into video games and stuff and them even saying, like, I had a Sega CD back in the day. Like, no one seemingly had the fucking system. Like, and I know people that used to have, like, Neo Geos and shit. So, you know what I mean? It's it's It just wasn't a popular thing, and it's a weird thing for them to take all the way to Congress because it's just overblowing that's something. That's another cool aspect of the the docu series episode here. They had the creator of Night Trap, so he gave you all the insight and that was on great. How that all came into fruition. That was yeah. great. And it was a cool story because I didn't know. As we've been saying ad nauseum, the stuff that we don't know as much about is you know obviously definitely stands out as being super interesting because this is stuff that we lived through the majority of it. So anything that could stand out is like, oh, I didn't know about this. You know, is definitely a, a cool part of this, and, and that whole thing was. And, uh, you know, he said at the end of the day, the best thing that came from the whole thing and, and this whole congressional hearings about video game violence was the fact that at least a rating system was developed from this. So that's that's where the whole video game rating system, you know, E for everybody, T for teen, M for mature, and then AO is adults only. Uh, but that, that, you know, that's why, you know, your parents, as you explained, wouldn't be on the hook anyway, like, come on now. But on top of that, before this meeting and what they were all talking about, if, if any parent that doesn't know what's going on, there's no ratings at that time on the games anyway. Yeah. So they're not going to know what it is. If your kids are asking for Mortal Kombat, you know, you, you might say from 
hindsight, like, come on, it's it's Mortal Kombat. But at the time, you didn't know, and a parent wouldn't know. Yeah, not. They then. would just get their kid what they were asking for if they deserved it or whatever. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, the rating the ratings thing came out of that whole hearing, and and he said that was at least a good thing because you know they should have ratings. You know, games are an art form, and they're they're very parallel to to films. Like they should have that. So it makes sense. And if it means that they can make games the way they want to make them for adults, then I'm all for that too. Because as an adult, exactly I've, that's what comes out. You of know, that. I enjoy some of those games, and I'm an adult, so I should be able to play them. So it's pretty simple as far There's as VR I'm porn concerned. in 2021. Hey, well, man. there you go. So it's a little little bit for everybody, if you will. Uh, next up is episode six. It's called Level Up. Nintendo goes 3D with Star Fox. Wolfenstein 3D popularizes the first-person shooter format, while Doom ups the ante with networked games. Now, this episode I thought was good. Um, I didn't really care a whole lot. I like the Doom stuff. Yeah, same. I didn't really care at all about Star Fox because I remember when Star Fox came out, and I didn't even think it was that great of a game, frankly. Um, But Wolfenstein 3D and Doom were massive for me. I loved those games as a kid. Uh, They were fucking nuts. And, dude, that was, like, one of the first times where I remember playing a video game where, like, the tension of a video game is, like, a thing you have to deal with. Like, it was difficult. Like, like the guy even explains, like, in Doom and shit where you're going, like, down dark pathways and, like, you kind of see, like, a glimpse of something, but you're not sure. And then you're, like, you know what I mean? It wasn't an easy game to yeah, navigate. Yeah, you got fireballs coming at you. Yeah, like, it, yeah. it gets pretty wild. So, like, that was, like, my first taste of that. And I didn't play a whole lot of those games on anything other than consoles. So I did enjoy them. Um, I still wish they would kind of make Doom in that sort of a way, even though I know that, the you know, the gaming industry's kind of surpassed that. Um, but, you know, nonetheless, Doom still, all these are successful franchises for a reason, minus Wolfenstein 3D, because, you know, they're not, they're probably not going to push the game with the Nazi imagery so much these days than they used to do. Uh, because it was yeah. you know appropriated correctly originally but nowadays it wouldn't be so it is what it is this was really interesting as well because they talk about the whole history of the evolution from side scrolling in 2d games that nintendo was that was popularized great. with you know yeah so for those that don't know that might be listening nintendo initially all their games were known as 2D, mainly side-scrollers, like Super Mario Brothers, for example, where you would just go left to right, you know, jump your character. You could you could go up and down as well, but it was like left, right, up, down, and in 2D. 2D's 2D. And this episode of High Score went over the invention of 3D and developing 3D, and that's what, like Ed mentioned, with Star Fox, what that was surrounding, and the one... I think his name was Masimoto. Uh, forgive me, it's not in front of me, but he's a legendary uh, Japanese video game creator. And he was walking in this Japanese park going through all these like pillars that were like over him. And he, it sparked the idea just from this walk that to kind of take gaming into 3D, that you could do something like that where you're like going through these, the players going through like the pillars. And that's how they started to develop Star Fox. And then that was a whole cool side story too to go along with that. Hey, uh, was that was the part where these two British developers that were really young at the time, I think the guy mentioned they were 18 years old at the time, and they're these genius video game developers that proved to Nintendo with a Game Boy that they could do 3D. That was so they really flew them cool. to Japan 
and they ended up getting put into Japan and they, they ended up getting like ostracized. They like just threw them in this random room and kept them away from all the other Japanese workers. And that's the same room where this, the uh, genius Korea, you know, video game creator would smoke. And so they were talking about that funny little anecdote that they'd be working. They're like, Oh God, he's back smoking this whole room up with his cigarettes. Yeah. I mean, dude, this is uh you know, it's kind of interesting because these were kind of the last days, I guess, of like kind of programmers being the like, the, you know what I mean? Like the game kind of changed after that. So there weren't as many like rinky dink operations and like weird like it kind of reminds you a lot about wrestling. Like, you know, how wrestling is now compared to the way it was in the 80s. It's like the end of an era type thing. And that's kind of how it felt for this just as an end of an era of like the wild west of like how they would program games and stuff like that. So uh, I thought that these were all pretty solid episodes, uh, probably more so than the the first three that we saw, uh, just especially because I saw this stuff more vividly uh, through the time periods of my life that I can remember compared to like when I was a little kid. But, um, you know, like like you were saying, too, I think that through the series, too, they kind of flip-flop a lot and there's there is a lot of stuff about this that i didn't like um but you know i did think that there were some good episodes in here i wasn't mad that i watched it i didn't feel like it was a waste of time or anything like that so you know i i thought overall that it was a pretty solid little series and and fairly easy to watch for the most part i'm with you i enjoyed it it was again it reminded me of the best example i could think of is like those vh1 shows i used to like those because again they're just easy turn off your brain kind of stuff and then this was all revolving around video games then you throw in the fact as as we've been thoroughly over that ed and i both personally grew up within all of this stuff so uh, again it just sparked a lot of memories a lot of nostalgia which i like and, and i learned a lot of different things along the way there were some funny moments uh but yeah really cool and i enjoyed the the final three here four through six uh as much as the first three so Definitely would recommend it to anybody in the video games that might not have caught this on Netflix so far. High score, the limited docuseries on Netflix. Absolutely. So we'll put the J. We are going to take a, another quick commercial break. And when we come back, we're going to get into the second episode of the current season of HBO's Hard Knocks starring the Dallas Cowboys. So stay tuned, guys. We'll be back right after this on the What's Real podcast. Join us next week for episode 83 of the What's Real podcast, where me and the Jays sit down to review SummerSlam 2021. Then it's the return of Thursday Night Prime with an all-time classic. It's NFL legend Brian Bosworth in Stone Cold. Also, we check out the brand new comic book adaptation by James Gunn. I'm talking The Suicide Squad. Then the coverage continues of HBO's awesome NFL series, Hard Knocks. It's episode three, continuing the season of the Dallas Cowboys. And all that and more next week on episode 80. Hey, hey guys, don't don't forget me. You guys, I know you it kind of messed up last week. I was kind of having a panic attack and I apologize, but this is Herman Gaines from the Witch Podcast. And I'm here to talk about Goose Your Goose, 83rd episode, where the guys will talk about things like trying to get laid during the pandemic and Skynet taking over the whole world. God damn oh, that it, actually, smell. That actually wasn't bad though. I'm kind of surprised. It but yeah, better. all that 
Yeah, thankfully. All that and much more next week on episode 83 of the What's Real podcast. episode number two of the season of HBO's Hard Knocks, specifically covering the Dallas Cowboys. Uh, So we covered the original uh, debut episode last week, or the season premiere, I should say. So here we go on episode two. Of course, episode one was mainly spent on talking about Dak Prescott's return from injury and uh, a little bit of a problem that he has with his shoulder um, that's kind of stopping him from throwing the football. And at the beginning of this week's show, we kind of got a little bit into that, uh, kind of the relationship between uh, Danucci, the backup quarterback, and, and Dak. Um, they still don't have Dak throwing the ball, um, which, you know, isn't the biggest deal, but I'm surprised they don't have him throwing in any capacity. Uh, and it was also announced, too, uh, that I saw like this morning that Dak Prescott is unlikely to play this Saturday against the Texans. Um, I think it's a pretty safe bet that we're not going to see much of him at all in the preseason. You might see him play the last game for a quarter or something like that. But I think it's a safe bet to say that Dak's probably done for the preseason. Yeah, it looks like it. I mean, they were emphasizing how how much they protect the quarterbacks in in preseason and especially practice. You know, you saw some of that footage with Danucci wearing the red shirt and one of the players, uh, the more unknown players, uh, he was that African dude they started following and he accidentally, yeah. you know, ran into Danucci's throwing arm and, and got reprimanded a little bit for that. So they're they're really restrictive on uh, taking care of the quarterbacks, which makes sense. I mean, that's your 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 money maker in, in the modern NFL or in the NFL period, really. Um, I, I did want to say at the outset some some comedy because HBO is HBO, and as my reference article on DraftKings was saying, there's no such thing as oversharing on Hard Knocks. And shout out to Leah Van on Twitter because you'll get a kick out of this. Hey, because I'm sure you remember the very beginning of the episode with Zeke. And Leah Van on Twitter said, very HBO of Hard Knocks to kick off the episode with crotch close-ups and Zeke needing baby power for his chafing. And I think he referenced his gooch like off the bat. (laughs) (laughs) Dude, it's it's funny because watching these two, like I I had a general idea of Zeke. Uh, before this but that that's one of the things that i like about hard knocks because they kind of it kind of puts the player personalities on display and even though i'm not a dallas cowboys fan it for some reason zeke's the dude that i keep seeing on here like you know if i played on this team i'd be friends with him just because i like how weird he is and he's a dude that would just make me laugh yeah i just like his person he just seems like a cool dude to me so traditional cut hilarious yes as we would call him yep and he dude seems like a really good teammate too. You know, like we were talking about that last week with him and Dak and stuff like that. Like I, he's just a really likable dude. So I get it. I get why people got his back. I get why his teammates like him and shit, because he's just the type of dude that no matter what's going on, things just seem to be a lot more fun when he's around. Yeah, he's cool. 
And, and it's funny as well, because I, I told, tell you this all the time as a, a huge Hard Knocks viewer and have been watching it since its incarnation as we've been over and how it influences my fantasy picking in C.D. Lamb in this episode, who they're like drooling over. I'm like, dude, I got to get C.D. Lamb. <laughs> dude, he was on my team last year. And I'm telling you right now, I normally don't say stuff like this because I haven't drafted yet. He's definitely on my draft board this year because it's th- this is a, a thing amongst, I think, football fans. They know this. If you see a wide receiver for the Dallas Cowboys that wears number 88, they're the heir apparent. Even if they're not the number one, even if there's somebody else better on the team, they're the dudes that are going to be the number one guy. And, dude, it's kind of weird. So this is two episodes in, and maybe I'm missing something here. Dude, we haven't seen Amari Cooper once. Not even I don't even remember seeing him off in the distance anywhere. Is this dude in camp? What is even happening here? That's a good point. I don't know if he's sitting out of camp. I actually researched that and couldn't find anything concrete regarding that because in my head I'm thinking maybe you know some of these dudes maybe have the option to kind of not sign up with with hard knocks and be featured or that sort of thing I don't know about that because I my understanding is if your team meets the qualifications and everybody has to sign off it's just the name of the game you play for the team it's the same thing as like you wouldn't be able to say as a player like okay well if our game's on Fox they're not allowed to film me Like, no, the NFL has a deal. They're certainly allowed to film you. Now, the only thing I know that some players do have control over is maybe not being mic'd up. Like, you know, ESPN wants to put a mic on you and you're like, nope, I'm not good with that. Then they'll they'll go to another player. But, um, you know, but I I think as far as this goes, they have to participate. I just don't know if Amari Cooper's in camp right now. The the best I found, hey, it was that Amari Cooper said that the rehab process from ankle surgery had been longer than expected. Okay, so and then he's, the, out he's most likely nursing that. Yeah, it's the the um the headline was that Amari Cooper nearing return for already stacked Cowboys. So, and I think that it, if that's any indication of what I think is already going to happen with this team, anyways, going into the season, I think we're going to kind of see this little shift where Ceedee Lamb is the number one, and Amari Cooper's uh, going to be one of the best number twos in the league. So I think that that's not necessarily a bad move for Dallas, but it's all going to come down to who's passing them the ball. But I definitely expect CeeDee Lamb to have a really, really good season. Oh, for sure. So coming off of uh, last season's rookie year, 74 catches, 934 receiving yards, and five touchdowns. So the bar is that much higher heading into a sophomore season here. And he did most of that without Dak. Exactly. He only played that's, with Dak four or five mention. games. Yep. So – you know, I definitely expect and they showed, better things from him. They showed Jerry Jones on the uh, the phone with the Dallas legend that he shares the number of, 88, uh, Cowboy Michael Irvin, talking to uh, Jerry Jones on the phone, like praising him. So that was cool to see, too, on this episode. And that's even, too, they show real quick on uh, – they show a clip from uh, Good Good Morning Football with Nate Burleson, former NFL wide receiver, and he even said, like, C.D. Lamb's about to be the man. So the receivers and former receivers, guys who would know, are already – you know, this guy's in their favor. So, I mean, I think that he's, he's about as safe bet as it gets when it comes to a wide receiver in the league this year. Um, of course – with hard knocks, not only do they, uh, you know, this is kind of typical. They put a little bit of a light on the the star players and stuff like that. But then this is the first episode because we saw the first, uh, you know, uh, scrimmage with another team where Dallas would go on to scrimmage with the the L.A. Rams. And of course, as usual and as expected, 
tempers flaring as we see a, a nice little dust up between Aaron Donner and Aaron Donald and Connor Williams. And uh, I think that's pretty safe to say that when you're an offensive lineman, uh, it's really easy to get into a fight with Aaron Donald because you're probably going to get tired of him beating you left and right. And <laughs> yeah. Even the even the Dallas players are like, man, 99 is a monster out there. I wouldn't yeah. want to fucking guard up against him. Even in practice, of course, yeah. Yeah. A, scrim- a scrimmage game. And, of course, too, with, uh, you know, with Hard Knocks, one of the things that they do is they try and put a spotlight on guys that typically wouldn't have a spotlight. And they did this one specifically during uh, the the – uh, first preseason game or second preseason game that they had against the Arizona Cardinals. And the player's name is Azer Kamara. Um, Kamara signed on as an undrafted free agent last season amid the COVID-19 crisis and wound up on injured reserve for the majority of his rookie season. Um, his name is located towards the bottom of the Cowboys defensive end depth chart. So this is the guy that they've kind of put the spotlight on to see if he can potentially make the team or not. Um, it, he has a really interesting story too. Uh, Kamara and his family are refugees from a civil war on the Ivory Coast, uh, which raged for five years during his childhood. His mother sought asylum in the United States while he and his siblings lived for years in the West African nation of Guinea. When his mother finally gained approval to send her children to join her in the United States, Kamara wound up in Phoenix with no knowledge of English, let alone an understanding of football. Uh, Kamara returned to Arizona to play in his first NFL action in front of his family, uh, not to mention nearly winning the game himself. Uh, and when it, it was a pretty interesting, you know, look at a player like this. So this is definitely the guy that they're uh, they're putting on the radar to kind of see if he can make the team or not. I always enjoy that kind of storyline aspect of hard knocks and they're already getting into it on the second episode. So that's cool. A freaking false start wiped out the whole play where he had a strip sack for to finish the game. That would have been and, awesome. And, it just got expunged. And dude, that was for on the offense too. So it's exactly. like they ended up getting a, another chance there and then kicking the field goal to win the game. So, um, but you know, nonetheless, uh, see that they also showed too that uh, Terrell Basham, uh, kind of the guy, like he's like the personality guy. You know what I mean? They're trying to put the spotlight on him as like one of the funny guys, one of the personalities on the team. And, uh, you know, they're also too uh, kind of spotlighting him because he's making a return uh, from an ankle injury. So, like, he's one of them dudes. It's like, you know, can he battle to get back on the field or no? So he's definitely they picked him as that kind of storyline. And it's crazy they get this these same type of storylines every season because these injuries and things like this are not uncommon at all in the NFL. That's life in the NFL, exactly. And and the the third guy that they gave some spotlight to and covered was hilarious. And that was the defensive line coach, Aiden Durday, who is British. Oh, and has a British I didn't even know that. <laughs> and it just, it works so well in Texas because he stands out so much with the British accent. And one of the, you know, during the press section, like press day or whatever it was, one of the reporters asked him if he knew who Ted Lasso was. If anybody gets yeah. that reference from the Jason Sudeikis Apple Plus show, which I actually watch because I have Apple Plus good show but yeah i got a kick out of that he, he was a cool character and of course too uh they always pick like i said the superstars to to zoom in on and this one is no uh exception to that rule too because they get a little love in there for demarcus lawrence who's absolutely one of the best defensive linemen in the nfl oh yeah and he's probably the best player overall besides dak on this team um, this dude's a monster. I mean, they basically just show you that it's not a secret whatsoever. 
Um, and it's, you know, there's no doubt this dude's going to be playing on a high level this season for sure. Yep. Just as we say, consistently and constantly hate you. Got to stay healthy. But if he does, dude, just pure beast. And uh, yeah, this was another entertaining episode. Some funny moments. Good shit. One of the other things that stood out to the J, of course, with the the Pittsburgh connection, man, the hometown shit that pops up uh, varying moments. And in this one, that was backup quarterback Ben DiNucci, who is from Pine Richland here in Pittsburgh, high school football. And he intended to enroll at the University of Pittsburgh and decommitted and accepted uh, a scholarship, or I'm sorry, University of Pennsylvania, and then decommitted and accepted a a scholarship at the University of Pittsburgh. (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) I'm dying here on the Hard Knocks coverage. But yeah, we have that that hometown connection. And he did a pretty good job in the exhibition game. He threw their first touchdown of the preseason and, and looked pretty good doing so. Yeah, and two highlights involving him was, of course, Dak and him on the practice field and him kind of, you know, being told by Dak, like, hey, man, you, you need a little bit of swag here because like, yeah. out there and, like he has no it, like he the only thing he had was around his uh, his ankle. And he's like, yeah, I'm, I'm on house arrest. <laughs> like, yeah, so he, he put on a hoodie <laughs> under his uni to get some swag. Yeah, and then, and then he had a good run. And like uh, Dak even said, he was like, oh, how'd that run feel? And he was like, I don't I don't know if I could have made it. It was the extra swag that kind of <laughs> set me off on that run. And I thought this was really cool, too, as you mentioned, uh, Danucci from uh, Western Pennsylvania, of course. And we mentioned him last week on the show, Micah Parsons, their their uh, all star rookie uh, from Penn State, who's from Eastern Pennsylvania, where they both engage in uh, Eastern Pennsylvania versus Western Pennsylvania a game of chess. A battle that of chess. Was won, which was won by Danucci, because as we know here at the What's Real podcast, Western Pennsylvania got that shit on lock. So. Uh, but you know, nonetheless, I love stuff like this. Uh, even though, again, I don't like the Cowboys and a lot of times for some reason, hard knock has had a knack for getting teams on here that I do not like, like the Cowboys, like the jets, uh, you know, like we've, we've seen the Browns of course, and of course the Raiders too. But the one thing it's funny because the, the two teams are not anything alike at all. But the Dallas Cowboys and the Raiders remind me a lot of each other, uh, me, mainly because like the, these teams are made up by like a cast of characters. So I knew, even though I'm not a big Cowboys fan, that uh, it would still be an entertaining season. And I got to say, two episodes in, man, it's just another season of exactly what I expect. And, and it's the reason why I like the show so much. It, for, as a football fan, like both of us are, there's very few things ever that have kind of given you this type of access. And I'm not saying they're giving you everything, but I mean, dude, we even seen that point in this one where they, they had like a, a film class and it was all about the team cadence. Like they were all trying to learn the quarterback cadence and know when, you know, when it's a legitimate call and when it's not. And I even, I like stuff like that yeah, because cool. I think that's something, dude, that gets overlooked so much and learn, learning cadence is extremely difficult. Right. But yeah, great show, man. Second week in a row. I think this one's a winner so far. I don't expect it to get worse from here. But uh, yeah, I mean, this is this is 100% what I would expect from the second episode where they're starting to get into the preseason games and guys are really starting to get into the thick of it at camp. Yeah, we always say just for a little less than an hour, just with the bookended credits, that sort of thing. It's just such an easy watch and Hard Knocks just flies, you know, and it's a total of five episodes. So just like that, we're two down, you know, halfway through next week's is officially halfway through the the Hard Knocks season, just like that. That's how fast it goes. And uh, really, overall, we were talking about that last week, how fast the NFL preseason goes. And before you know it, they're 
we're going to be covering the 2021 NFL regular season, just like that. So everything's around the corner. But it, uh, we, as we talk about, man, both of us love football. We love talking about it this time of year. So I'm, I'm all about it, man. I'm, I'm enjoying it. But yeah, Hard Knocks is, is off to a good start. and It's been very entertaining for the Jay. Absolutely, man. I couldn't agree more. So here we are, two episodes into Hard Knocks. And before you know it, we're going to be spitting out our power rankings, breaking down Steeler games, talking fantasy. The NFL season is getting started. And I know both of us could say this easily. We're both getting pretty excited. So that's the breakdown for episode two of Hard Knocks here on HBO. Join us next week for episode three, because we're going to continue to cover these throughout the season. So I hope you guys enjoyed that. But we are going to take a quick commercial break. And when we get back, me and the Jay are going to tell you about our epic stupidity, epic fun, epic nonsense that always happens when we get together and, and go to wrestling. And especially if you want to mix in the little bit of uh, doing it in the city of Pittsburgh, because that adds so many more factors to this. So stay tuned, guys. And we're going to tell you all about it right after this. when We come back right here on the What's Real podcast. All right, I'm stopping. Good shit. Hey, hey Yins, guys. This is the Jay from the What's Real podcast for our official sponsor, Churchill Pictures. Churchill Pictures is a Pittsburgh-based film production company founded by Damiano Fusca and Jared Bajoris. Check out churchillpictures.com for all kinds of information about the company and their work. The website contains dozens of videos, including short films, movie previews, comedy sketches, the entire documentary UCW, The Greatest Show You Never Saw, exclusive independent pro wrestling matches, links to view or purchase their two feature films, Deference and The Unsung, the entire history of the What's Real podcast, the Film City podcast, and so much more. Check out churchhillpictures.com today and also check out the official Churchill Pictures YouTube channel. Search for Churchill Pictures and please subscribe. Also follow Churchill Pictures on all social media, including Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Churchill Pictures, picture the possibilities. And we're back, and it is time for What's Real Goes to AEW. First up on Wednesday night, uh, you know, the show is Dynamite. Uh, Rampage is on Friday, so we'll get to that here in a moment. But uh, basically, this is a, a nice little breakdown for people who don't live in Pittsburgh. Anybody else that lives here is probably going to completely understand all this bullshit. But... Uh, so basically me and the Jay both live in suburbs of Pittsburgh. I'm in the Eastern suburbs. He's in South of the city and we have to meet up technically in the city because this takes place at the Peterson event center, which is on the university of Pittsburgh's campus. It's where their basketball team plays. So it's like their field house. So because Pittsburgh's so terrible uh, with traffic and, and parking and everything, we come to the conclusion it's better off to get one car down there. And this is kind of our idea. Like one night I'll drive, the next night the Jay drives, what have you. So we decide to meet up in the Strip District because it's an area that both of us know very well and you know we can kind of navigate from there. So the first night starts out pretty well where you know me, you, and, uh, and our friend uh, Dave Ass get together and, and go get some food. Uh, that went perfectly well, okay? And at this point, uh, we drop uh, Dave Ass off back where he was at, and uh, we head to the Peterson Event Center. Naturally, there's traffic because, you know, you got to have that. Um, 
so we basically find our way and navigate through all this traffic uh, to a parking spot <laughs> where there was like an abandoned house. Now, it's not a bad area. It's just like one house in the area. This is kind of a college town, a college campus. So you see some shitty houses here and there. It's not even a bad area. It's by hospitals and all kinds of shit like that. So we park the car and we proceed to make our way in. Uh, as we get in there, the J, uh, you know what, you know, everybody's coming in. You got a little bit of uh, AW dark elevation being taped at the time as we kind of find our way uh, to our seats, uh, which once we did, everything was fine. But then we proceeded to go to the merch stands, the J. So I, I would say that that's probably uh, the first place of where we should start. Here. Yeah. How are the, how are those merch stands? <laughs> well, that's the thing. I'd, I'd preface everything as well with saying, obviously, and we were talking about it in the preview going in, this was the first big event that you and I were attending during the pandemic. And yeah. the Peterson Event uh, Center did require everyone to wear masks, but we all know how that goes. You know, you get in with your mask and then <laughs> from there it's kind of the Wild West. But hey, Ed and I adhered to the rules and, and predominantly wore our masks uh for you know when we're around people and things and proceeded uh first place to go to the merch stand uh which was a big deal for us because i wanted to get something for my eight-year-old son well soon to be eight-year-old son seven-year-old son jace that's a huge wrestling fan and likes aew so i figured you know there'd be stuff there for them and of course i wanted a kind of souvenir t-shirt at least and figured there'd be some cool shit because you see a ton of really neat aew stuff online and on their website well, yeah, and even in the crowd, whenever you watch their shows, too. Exactly. So, hey, Ed and I get to our nearest merch stand, one of two. I think there was only two set up in the building. And let me just say, and Ed can take over here, man, were we disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was extremely weird because, you know, you figure everybody has their favorite wrestler. And, from and you know, keep in mind, too, um, this is not coming from a perspective of going to, like, WWE shows. Like, we've went to a ton of wrestling shows from a bunch of different companies through the years. And it's usually pretty the same, it, pretty much the same. You know, WWE is on a much bigger scale, so they probably have more stuff than everybody. Um, I've been to Ring of Honor shows where literally there's, like, five tape dealers, seven to ten, you know, tables of T-shirts and other shit. And, you know, in the past, too, we've even spent a considerable amount of money at the merch table. And I like to try and if I like the company, I try and buy something to kind of support somebody. Even um, IWC they, shows. That's the local. Yes, yeah. absolutely. We've done that time and time again through the years. Uh, but at this show, it was pretty weird because there wasn't a single shirt available for any wrestler. It was just AEW stuff. And all the AEW um, shirts seemed like they were made for the event, just with some local company yeah. or something. They were gold shirts with just a black AEW symbol. It so was as plain as you can get. They tried to do it for like a Pittsburgh color, but I didn't really see anybody buying or wearing these. I did see some people that got the Dynamite shirts and the Rampage shirts, the I Was There shirt, which I tried to buy, but they had no sizes at that point. So it, it was just basically unfortunate, but two shows that I went to uh, in a matter of three days and did not buy a single 
piece of merchandise. Now, I'll send this one over to you, the J. So you decided at the very least, because we spotted some AEW figures, that maybe, since your son is a big wrestling fan and does collect wrestling figures, that maybe you'd grab him a wrestling figure. But that didn't quite work out, the J. And tell us why. Yeah, as in my head, I'm thinking 30, 40 bucks. I might have to turn it down or really think about it if it was 50, if they like upcharge. Because uh, th- what are those retail usually hit you at about 30? 20 bucks. Okay, 20, 20 bucks. So ring, 30 ring if you do a pre order. Gotcha. Yeah, so, yep. That's why I was thinking 30, because I've done pre orders in the past online. So I'm thinking, you know, 30 bucks max, you know, I'll just get him a figure. It's, it's worth for the experience and the souvenir to bring him home. So I, I know what he has for the most part. And they had a handful of guys. And I'm like, you know what? The, the one that stands out, the coolest one, guy he doesn't have, would be Frankie Kazarian. So I said, told the young lady, uh, grab me a fa- Frankie Kazarian uh, figure, and which was cool on her part because, you know, other people bring it back, and then she would have hit me with the, the price, and then we would have went <laughs> yeah. from there. She gave me a disclaimer and said, well, you know what? Those are all signed, so they're $100 each. For a kid that's going to want to open it, too. So, well, I mean? that's why it wasn't. Yeah, it wasn't happening. That was for like a collectible. And, and even if you're keeping it, it was like like we mentioned, like you can have your own $30 figure and probably figure out a way to have Frankie Kazarian sign it for much less than spending $100. Uh, I'm yeah. Sure. And in so, a situation where you'd probably get to meet Frankie Kazarian, too, you wouldn't have to not meet him and pay that much for an autograph. It's kind of a, a weird scenario. That, dude, I saw that they had like fans like you know if you're hot but they didn't have batteries in them so that's <laughs> you know we because obviously you can't have batteries that people could throw um they had a sticker pack like or is this really what we're doing here guys like they did have uh the the Britt baker dmd like terrible towel that's what i was going to mention those were the biggest sellers the terrible towel but, Britt baker because thing. it's that's the only thing you could buy yeah. <laughs> if you like Britt Baker. So I don't know. That was super, super disappointing. So uh, the first night, uh, as I said, we were going to Dynamite. So we've seen a little bit of, of what they were doing with Dark Elevation. Not a big deal. So we get to our seats and the night is essentially starting off here with Dynamite. So and I, I have to mention, too, off the outset, good job. Hey, you know, with the seats because hey Elt is the one that ordered the seats for us and he got some good ones they were you know you could see everything they're right towards the entryway and uh, about 20 rows back in the mid-level you know above the floor but really really good seats yeah i thought they were good too because i mean we kind of do this thing where you know dude we've been to so many wrestling shows through the years that we've kind of sat everywhere so now when we go to like bigger shows and shit, I'm basically just trying to get the best possible sight of vision for us to watch the matches. Cause that's really exactly. what we go there for. So, um, but they did have a pretty solid card for this one. It started off with a trios match uh, with Kenny Omega and the Young Bucks taking on Dante Martin and the Sadal brothers. And we figured this would be fun, and boy, was it, because uh, great match. Dante Martin, it was like a showcase for him. Uh, we got to see the Bucks. We got to see Kenny. Like, it was just a really fun match. The Sadal brothers brought some shit. Um, they let them go way more than I even kind of expected, and it exactly. was a really good way to set the night up to start. Yeah, that that's truly what stands out to me more than anything is Dante Martin stealing the show, the Seidel brothers doing their thing, and, of course, you got the Bucks and Kenny Omega live and in color. So great, great first match to experience live here at the show. 
And then at this point, I think they brought out Britt Baker and kind of had her do an interview about the city, which was fucking fantastic. Uh, obviously, I remember it live and then I watched it on TV, too. And uh, it came across really well. And again, it was just like another segment where the crowd was super hot. Yeah, she is so over, uh, period, let alone in her home city of Pittsburgh. So it was just great to experience a super hot crowd just going nuts for Brett. We got to see Darby Allen take on Daniel Garcia in what's been uh, kind of an ongoing TV feud for the last few weeks. Now, this match was a little bit against uh, kind of what we thought we'd see. It was more where Daniel Garcia was grounding uh, Darby. Uh, but we did see Darby get the W here. I think this match here went a little bit too long. And even when I rewatched it on TV, I kind of felt the same way. It wasn't bad or anything. It was just kind of too long in the middle to do kind of what they, you know, what they were trying to do. It was the wrong time. Yeah, I'm with you. We, we both said during that match, it was kind of dragging at points, but uh, there's definitely been worse, hate y'all, which is a, an easy cop-out to say, but nonetheless, it's the truth. Uh, it was kind of one of those ones that, like I mentioned, like kind of just a mediocre spot. But nonetheless, good to see Darby, and uh, it was cool to see the, the coffin drop live. You know, he hit the coffin drop solid for the win. Absolutely. And uh, next up was the match we decided to go hit the, uh, you know, uh, concessions. Uh, and it was Nyla Rose versus Chris Statlander. Uh, not a bad match. I did watch it back. It was only about four minutes and Chris Statlander got the win. And as we were making our way back to our seats, we were getting the Impact Tag Team title matchup, the J. Um, yeah. And this match started out pretty well. And it was the Good Brothers versus Evil Uno. And, of course, Stu Grayson of the Dark Order. Now, halfway through this match is kind of when our night went a little haywire. So, the Jay, would you like to take it over from here? This is where things get interesting somewhat. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, like I, I would joke to, to hey, you know, uh, for those that don't know me, my, my life overall is I just have a lot of weird luck. And whenever you go and do something normal with me, you usually come out with some sort of a story. I'm not saying I'm, you know, like some crazy movie person like Forrest Gump, you know, like, but things like that do happen on, on a different scale. So long story short in it, as hey, mentioned, we, we go to get some, some drinks, uh, go hit the concession stand. And that's about the time that Ed mentions how his phone's kind of blowing up. He's like, you know, what the hell? I can't talk to anybody. I'm at a, you know, loud ass wrestling show. And it just so happens as soon as Ed says that regarding his show that my phone starts blowing up and it's my wife and it's the same kind of situation. I mean, it's, you know, we're going back into to find our seats. I'm, I'm like holding a beer. It's loud as shit. I'm like, you know, I'll call her back or I'll text her. You know, she knows I'm at a wrestling show. Well, it just so happens that a few minutes go by, we get back to our seats. I get another call from her that ends up turning into a text that says, please call me now. So that's not good. You know, I didn't even have time to think anything too crazy, like, but I'm, I'm thinking it's an emergency. So I call her right back, hold, holding my finger to my ear, still sitting in my seat, trying not to be <laughs> too loud to ruin anybody's experience or whatever. But I'm just trying to see what's up like there and then instead of kind of going away. Again, long story short of it, she then explains to me that the city police, the Oakland cops, that's the area where the University of Pittsburgh is, is, is the Oakland area of Pittsburgh, had looked up my license plate and called the area from where I currently reside, the Mount Lebanon cops, 
to let them know that I needed to move my car right away or it was going to be towed. Now, now let, let go us ahead, preface Hale. this by saying that we are not stupid. <laughs> we understand what part Jared does a lot of driving. I've worked in the city for a long time. So we are fully understanding how signs and things work. And when we parked Jared's car, we double checked everything. And the only sign for parking was permit parking 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. It was well after 7 p.m. when we parked. So otherwise, we should have been fine. We even made a joke about the abandoned house there that had some, you know, yellow tape around it and stuff so people don't walk near it, which is fine. Um, and then we proceeded to go in the show. Fast forward to what Jared's telling you and commence the J. And I am just shocked. I'm telling my wife there was no signs. This is bullshit. Uh, what should I do? Should I just go out and move it? Then I'm not going to get back in. Then I'm feeling bad because, you know, Ed's basically attached to me because like he said, we parked somewhere somewhere different is is where his car was in the strip district over the hill. It's like a 10, 15 minute drive. So we're in this whole conundrum in the middle of this wrestling event. This is about the time, um, which was perfect timing, hey, in the breakdown of this show where the Impact Wrestling titles were going on. So I'm getting distracted and missing a lot of this good match, you know, still paying attention enough sitting in the seats, but dealing with this situation. So my wife is a saint. I mean, she's a teacher, so she's off right now, but we have two kids, but she still said, look, I'm going to pick my friend up, my, my friend Nikki up. We're going to run down with the kids so that Nikki can drive the van. You know, that's that's what she drives. And then she'll pick up and move my car and we'll figure out how we're going to swap things when we get down there. And I'm like, you know, you're the best. So in the meantime, after that, she starts heading down. I get a call on my phone from a weird number. So I figure something's got to be up with that. So I answer that again while we're sitting in the crowd dealing with all this. It is loud as shit, but I'm able to hear enough. It's the Mount Lebanon police calling me to just check in on things. And uh, the, the officer's asking me if, if my wife's still coming down or if I'm leaving the show. And I said, no, I mean, she's she's not really doing anything right now. She's on her way now. She's doing me a favor. You know, like I feel like a dick to this cop. Like, no, I'm staying at pro wrestling. My wife and kids are taking care of the car. And it's like this whole fucking thing. And uh, eventually the timing ends up working out. While all this is going on and the show's finishing up, the only thing we were going to end up missing was the after Dynamite went off the air matches that they were uh, shooting for their their YouTube show, which was like a Sammy Guevara match, which we still would have liked to have seen. But it was a, a small sacrifice to the wrestling and parking gods on this night to get out there in time to meet my wife. Uh, the timing was so good, in fact, that she dropped the car off right for Ed and I to hop in. And then she went uh, and jumped in and took over driving uh, the van that her friend Nikki had pulled up. So uh, dude, not, never a dull moment, as we were saying. Th this actually kind of worked out hilariously because as Jared's having this conversation, we see the end of the tag team title match. He finishes up talking to the cop that called him and just in enough time to basically watch the main event, sing Judas, <laughs> like take off before the show kind of was at its end. So we got out of there pretty quickly. Like Jared said, hopped in the car and went home after the first night with one more night left of action uh, two days later on Friday. So night one was a semi-success, I guess you could say. Uh, my first impressions from an AEW show was like the crowd was super hot. 
Uh, it felt like all the matches were pretty involved and the flow went pretty well. And it, it was a pretty fun night. So I was definitely jazzed up and ready to go back on Friday. Uh, even with our minor mishap, we still managed to have a pretty good time on Wednesday. Exactly. Yep. So Friday coming up here. Now, I, I think that it's safe to say that me and you pretty much are super busy on Fridays to begin with. Like we both had work related stuff to do all day. And again, it was like we were going to follow the same kind of a plan, but with a little difference. All right. We just said, you know what? We'll pay for parking if we have to, because there were some uh, parking garages nearby. Yes. Which for some reason we didn't end up doing. <laughs> so we go down to the city and the area that we were in suddenly was no good to park in. Really? There wasn't much parking. I was driving around trying to find shit. You kind of met up with me in like an area by where we parked and there was enough parking for one car. So I pretty much just told you to park it and I was going to drive. So that's what we did. And uh, we get down to Oakland this time with plenty of time. So it was good. Like we parked, went for a walk, fucking got some food, uh, met a couple buddies uh, and basically had to head back to the car to go park for the show. So we do all that. Uh, we park on uh, another road again, which, you know, free parking and all that with a staircase that clearly looks like it leads up to where the Peterson Event Center is. Uh, so we just park there, hop out uh, almost immediately. It starts raining because, uh, you know, you got to have that. And uh, as we continue to walk here, we realize we're walking into a construction zone, so we might not be able to get through here. And then the fucking adventure begins from there because <laughs> it continually rains more. Uh, we're walking through the most nondescript area of all time, just trying to find a way through, which we eventually do where we find a staircase that takes us down to where a bunch of fans are waiting to get in the building. But I think it's safe to say that, Jay, that by the time we got in that line, it looked like we both fell in the river. Uh, it was it was hilarious. So like I said, we end up in this construction zone, and we're not talking rain. We're talking torrential, consistent downpour, complete pouring. <laughs> we're kind of getting our bearings under this like underpass kind of thing within the construction zone. And on top of it, as what's real listeners may know, Hayed and I being humongous sneakerheads and going out in the summer, we're both wearing top notch Air Jordans. So, you know, we're completely unprepared. No ponchos, no umbrella, drenched to the bone. My goofy stunt former pro wrestler ass is still down to try to jump off retaining walls and fences that Ed's like, like fuck no, you. We're fuck walking that. around. We ended up finding a, a fence that was was cool enough to get around pretty easily. So we got around that one. And like Ed said, finally made our way drenched, soaking wet to the back uh, portion of the Peterson Event Center where there was other fans. And like we were talking about going down there into it. We're like, yeah, we're going to be these two assholes just drenched to the bone. But meanwhile, it's freaking AEW pro wrestling fans in Pittsburgh. Nobody else was prepared either. Nobody else had ponchos or umbrellas. And everybody else was just as soaked as us. So as usual at a wrestling show, hey, Ed and I fit right in. But, you know, it's cool because we'll just go to the merch stand and get T-shirts to wear that are dry. <laughs> yeah. Nope, that couldn't happen either. So tonight, as I said, we're earlier. So we got to get there for the AEW Dark stuff. Uh, which, I mean, I'm not going to lie, I kind of felt like it was going on forever. I'm not complaining. So a bunch of different matches, a bunch of different guys. Uh, but then the main event gets started, essentially, and I'm talking Rampage. 
So Rampage was a pretty impressive card to start out with. So it was announced that the show was going to start off with Kenny Omega defending the Impact World Championship against Christian. Uh, we both figured that this would be a pretty good match, and it was very surprising because even though neither one of us have ever been to an Impact Wrestling show in our lives, we've seen the Impact World Championship change hands as Christian defeated Kenny Omega one-on-one. -on -one, and we said in a match that like, you know, Kenny Omega hasn't lost a match in a couple of years at this point. So that was a pretty big deal. Uh, the crowd went fucking bananas. Uh, it was awesome. Great match. Uh, I haven't even had a chance to rewatch uh, Rampage yet. But Neither I'd have like I, to. ironically. Yeah, I still have it DVR'd. I haven't watched but, it yet. You know, I'm dying to see how that match comes off on TV because it was really, really good live. Uh, and I enjoyed it a lot. And the show was like already off to a monumental start at that point. Yeah, I mean, super hot start. Christian, the ageless wonder, still such a good worker. I mean, he, it really does, especially going there, seeing, seeing him live. And of course, you come out, I'm sure, kind of biased in your head from from the experience but I just come out thinking like, man, Christian really is one of the most underrated wrestlers of all time, maybe because he yeah. kind of gets overshadowed by edge and things like that. And he's just always in solid matches, you know, like even just randomly talking out, out here on the show, that random WrestleMania 18 match that he had with DDP that remember, yeah. we always talked about yeah. that. It was like this great match out of nowhere that they just, you could tell they went to just try to make an impact. And this, this one, uh, lived up to the expectations I had said in our preview, I was kind of expecting this to happen just because it was the inaugural rampage. It's the impact title. Kenny Omega has what, like three or four actual belts, you yep. know, he comes out with, which is an awesome entrance. So yeah, it all made sense. All came together. They worked the crowd unbelievably. All the false finishes were super hot and it was great to be a part of that. And an amazing title change. And dude, that really, because too, I didn't even mention this, but we got to see Sting on Dynamite, which yeah, was that's another, right too. We were talking about that leading into it. We wanted it to it see was Sting another live. really big checklist moment, I think, for both of us. And this yep. was another one, man. You know, you got to see, you know, Christian. That's see, that's why I was so happy. <clears throat> Just thinking about it, like whenever this came up for like you know, the tickets and everything. It's like, sometimes this is why you pull the trigger on stuff like this. Cause it wasn't easy, dude. You were actually in another state at the time and we were trying to coordinate everything to try and make sure it worked out, but it did. We decided to go to both shows. And because we did that, we got to see both of these things. So it was pretty cool. And, uh, and of course the night wasn't over. Uh, we had another match scheduled as Miro was uh, going to defend the uh, TNT championship against Fuego Del Sol. And if Fuego Del Sol wins, of course, he was going to get a contract with AEW. He did not win that match. Um, and what we got was actually a really uh, cool moment that, from my understanding, was a legitimate shoot uh, where Tony Khan, the owner of AEW, came out with Sammy Guevara, a friend of Fuego Del Sol, and they offered him a contract anyways. And uh, it was a really nice moment. I even seen some of the the uh, behind-the-scenes stuff because uh, Sammy has a vlog on YouTube that's actually pretty solid. And uh, it showed a lot of the stuff on there. And the dude was legitimately happy, man. That contract is real. So I appreciate uh, getting to see something like that live in person because it's something different than just seeing a regular match or whatever. 
And it was really funny too, because with them being friends, like you mentioned, Sammy came out joking. He's like, even though you're two and twenty-seven yeah. <laughs> here in AEW, you still gonna get a contract. One in fifty or something. Yeah. Too. But it it was cool. Another cool moment, and, and that was the other part of this. We really did want to see Miro. Hey, and I both, you know, we've talked about it. We're both big on Miro and his current character. I think he's really good. So uh, it was cool seeing him live. Uh, of course, you got to go th- for the squash with Miro and his character on Del Sol here. So it made sense. But uh, a really cool moment, uh, icing on the cake to to this segment as well with with uh, Del Sol getting a kind of impromptu uh, moment there. And basically, you have to say the main event of the week here uh, was none other than Britt Baker defending the AEW Women's Championship against Red Velvet. We knew this was going to kind of be like a big game atmosphere, and that's definitely what it was. I actually had a few people that I know that knew I was going and knew that I live in Pittsburgh and stuff. Uh, they live in other states and shit, but they they watch wrestling and they watch AEW, and they sent me messages and shit on Facebook like, dude, this crowd was on fire all night, and that's kind of how it felt in person. And, dude, I mean, I've seen a lot of stuff live. Like, we've talked about the Hell in a Cell and other shit. But, like, dude, I can't remember going to a really big wrestling show like this. And it's like the crowd was just on fire both nights. You could just tell, like, there was an electricity in the crowd. It was just really, really cool. It's one of those things where the stars aligned that we're used to getting the WWE events at the console energy where the penguins play and and that's cool it's always good to go to pro wrestling live and and we always say man we we have our respect for wwe we just call it like it is right now but my point is to the the popularity where AEW is currently risen they're debuting the new show Britt baker is their top female act and she's a hometown girl everything just aligned the peterson event center like we said hey it was a perfect place for pro wrestling too it's the right size for the capacity the sound carries appropriately like it's just so loud in there it's just so cool and it's it's summed up perfectly in this uh article that you had sent me hey in preparation for the show straight from pittsburgh magazine where the headline says pittsburgh's love affair with wrestling is rekindled at the peterson event center on the shoulders of hometown hero Britt Baker, the long history of the Steel City and pro wrestling gets a raucous new chapter. And that kind of sums it up. Good job, Sean Collier. Yeah, because, I mean, dude, that's something that we've seen, you know, me, me and you specifically growing up. We were told all the stories of Bruno San Martino. We seen Bruno kind of in his last days in the WWF back in the day. Um, of course, we know about Chili Billy Cardilli. Uh, because of Chiller Theater, but also because he was an announcer on Studio Wrestling. Uh, We lived through a whole other era of Pittsburgh wrestling, too, with people like Kurt Angle and even Shane Douglas, to a degree, representing the city. So there's always been, you know, a pretty good wrestling history with Pittsburgh. Uh, We were even talking about this going into these shows, man, like that Pittsburgh always seems to get something special. Like, I'm not saying that Pittsburgh's Madison Square Garden, and I'm not saying that we're like, you know, fucking Titty Brook, Nebraska, either. It's it's a pretty big city. It has a pretty rich wrestling history. And for whatever reason, the shows that happen here manage to give Pittsburgh something. Because we've seen it time and time again through the years about how we end up getting special stuff, even if it's inadvertently. Exactly. And this this adds to the history. And it was really cool because as we've been covering here on the podcast with our wrestling coverage and talk that AEW is growing 
at a pretty high rate right now, you know, especially currently. And we were right in line with that for this show in Pittsburgh. And again, the stars aligned for Britt B- Baker to be in the position that she was in, in her hometown. And yeah, I mean, I, I haven't been to that hot of a crowd in years, so it was great to be a part of that. And I'm glad we got to do that together too. Hey, yo. absolutely, man. So added to the list of the shows from the companies that we've seen uh, through the years, because it is many, uh, and I look forward to many more, man. I, I really enjoy AEW. I look forward to them coming back. Uh, I just look forward to going to see more pro wrestling in person in general. That's something that I've wanted to do as much as possible, especially since we got zero of that during the pandemic. Um, and we're still, unfortunately, in a pandemic in in many ways. So that's something to keep in mind, too. Uh, and I probably, unfortunately, won't get the chance to go to wrestling again for, for a little while anyways because of everything that's going on. Um, I just think it's kind of in, in our best interest for that. But, yeah, man, I, I highly recommend AEW Live. If you guys get a chance to see it wherever you're at, I recommend it. Dude, the seats were more than reasonable. I think I paid uh, like 100 or, yeah, 104 bucks or 105 bucks for two nights uh and for two tickets so like to me that's one of the best most reasonable deals to go see anything in a major arena in any city in america so uh definitely worth it Uh, i would go again and you know kudos to AEW for bringing pittsburgh two really good nights of pro wrestling action man hopefully you could tell from our exuberance just telling these stories we had a blast memories made what's real podcast going to uh, live wrestling in a great show, a historic event with Rampage. And then on top of it all, as as we noted on here, wanted to to get it on the podcast, some personal stories that always seem to happen with us when we get together. Uh, <laughs> some fun times with cops and towings and wives helping out and getting rained on and everything in between. Of course, the classic pro wrestling fan watching that we were dying, you know, some hilarious fans that we were interacting with and things like that. So great Can stories we- as always and a great time. We met the best friend of the wife of Sign Guy Dudley, uh, unknowingly, uh, but we that did. That was hilarious. Uh, yes. and ter- hilarious and terrible all at the same time. So <laughs> uh, we're going to take a quick commercial break and come back. Jesus Christ. Ah, I was supposed to be ready for this and I got caught okay. this time. Jesus Christ. All right. Just go, go, go. Jesus Christ, this is a mess. All right, look, hopefully everything's... Oh, shit, here it comes again. When we come back uh, Thursday Night Prime, Cyborg 89, uh, stay tuned. Hopefully pray for us or some shit. We'll see you. Bye. This is Ed from the What's Real podcast for Physically Fit with Kurt Angle. At Physically Fit, we are committed to providing our customers with the highest quality, better-for-you protein snack nutrition the entire family will enjoy. In a time when product quality seems to be compromised by price, we are determined to be unique and offer different offerings, superior ingredients, great taste, texture, and quality in every bag. We strive to inspire everyone on some level and share values of faith, family, respect, and excellence daily. Our goal is to be a small part of your life, personal growth, health, and happiness. We consider each customer to be part of our growing physically fit family and encourage all to live life to its fullest. Set new goals daily to better yourself physically, financially, emotionally, and spiritually. Don't compromise your values and always be kind and respectful to others. Our motto is healthy people, healthy planet, because we believe that providing great tasting nutrition makes for a healthier you and a healthier you 
makes for a healthier planet. Strive for a better tomorrow and live physically fit. Go to physicallyfit.com today. It's time for Thursday Night Pride. Oh, and we're back. And oh, Jesus, I'm too old for this shit, man. You know that? So yeah, I mean, I'm stitched up. I'm somewhat getting used to it, but I, I've survived a couple weeks unscathed, and now it's like back to maybe having bad luck. And we were talking about being prepared this week, but that's the thing. Like we said, man, we get in the zone. Like we're podcasters. Like we're in this. Yeah. And we forget about this fucking Thursday night prime bullshit. But I'm telling you, one of these weeks, peeps, we're going to be ready, man. I'm going to start stocking up. I know you are too. Hey, you know, we're gonna be you know, fighting back sooner than later. But I'm bleeding all over the place. It kind of makes sense because it's called the the movie we're taking a look at this week is from 1989. It's called Cyborg. I think I'm gonna go get like robotic parts because I think that's just gonna make it way easier. Yeah, because I'm not. I'll do nothing but help. I don't have time to be shooting and training and all this shit, so I gotta take a shortcut here. You know what I mean? Like it's this is ridiculous. Uh, but anyway. As we were saying, from 1989, we're talking about the movie Cyborg. This is directed by Albert Pune, and it is from the wonderful folks over at Canon Films. Uh, this is one of the first movies to put Jean-Claude Van Damme on the map after Bloodsport. He was still working in the Canon Films uh, area, I guess you would say, or with that company. And check this out, guys. So this one is about a martial artist hunting a killer in a plague-infested urban dump of the future. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, that's, synopsis. that's basically what it is. Now, I'm not going to try and fool anybody here and act like Cyborg is some great film because it's not at all. The dialogue's terrible. Some of it's dubbed over. Um, you know, a lot of things don't sound right in this movie, but this is a point that I wanted to make because I think it's pretty important. And it's... Uh, it's kind of indicative of what Albert Pune was as a director. Um, this dude gets more from nothing than maybe any director I could possibly think of. He's done a ton of sci-fi and fantasy stuff. And it's like, dude, even on the mediocre budget they had with this one, like some of the sets were pretty tremendous. Like the ones with That's the pirate ships say. and the, the sand and everything. Like yep. even though it's done cheaply, it still kind of works. Like... He's way better. He's a classic case of an overachiever. You know what I mean? Like good, the way, good call, what, he, yeah. what he does ends up being better than really what it should be. And I'll tell you right now, thank God for Albert Pune, because this one is not a glaring example of Jean-Claude Van Damme's best work in any capacity. No, and there were some chuckle moments, but yeah, definitely lacking in the, the infamous Thursday Night Prime staple UIC. Uh, not too much unintentional comedy in this one. It's pretty straight, you know, straight uh, laced uh, film here. But like you said, I think the main component that really stood out for me was the atmosphere. And it kind of goes hand in hand with one of the biggest props I gave last week's Thursday night film firepower was that this is really its own little world kind of movie, which I, I mentioned I really like. Yeah. And, and yeah, it's the traditional post-apocalyptic shit, but it, it gives it its own flavor with Albert Pune and uh, the, the atmosphere really helped carry it because yeah, there was a lot of, a lot of clunkiness and goofiness in, in parts. Yeah. I mean, this movie, I guess one of the better ways for me to explain it is kind of like a fever dream. 
because they do go through a bunch of different environments and stuff where it, right. it kind of feels like it's seven different movies pieced together bit by bit. Um, and it's not your classic kind of like action movie where like Van Damme's kicking ass. I mean, most of the movie, he gets completely fucked up and bit like he doesn't stand a chance here. And I and I kind of forgot that because this is another one I haven't seen in forever. I have seen it, but dude, it's been decades since I last saw it. And I kind of forgot that aspect. And when you're so used to Van Damme kicking ass, it was kind of a nice change. Yeah. And dude, I was trying to think, okay, because I knew I'd seen this before. It'd been a really long time. But when I was watching this, it kind of popped in my head that I'd actually seen this at the drive-in, oddly enough. And I was trying to remember what I saw with it. But dude, this is an 89. So like, I went to the drive-in a lot in 89. I remember seeing like No Holds Barred at the drive-in and like shit like Gremlins 2 and stuff. Like there's a lot of stuff that I saw that year. So for the life of me, I can't remember what it was, but I definitely, this was like the second movie at the drive-in when I went and seen something. It might even have been like Batman or something, believe it or not. Oh, wow. That would have been a hell of a double bill, Batman 89 and then Cyborg. But yeah, it's a solid memory. Hate you all because this this was like would be a solid driving movie. Um, but yeah, so, some initial t- uh, bullet points as I do. I of course got a chuckle just off the bat on Van Damme's na- full name in this. I don't know if it's, you if you saw oh, his full it's name. Awful. Gibson Rickenbacker. <laughs> yeah, Jesus Christ. See, that's what I mean. Like, like Gibson Rickenbacker. Like the script of this isn't good. The dialogue isn't good. Um, the acting's certainly not good, even no. in, in a Thursday night prime capacity, but like the the visuals in this are the visuals good. are good. And I did like the villain, like for the you know, he's yeah, like the like the cyberpunky kind of fucking dude. Yeah. Like, yeah, exactly. Like there and dude, I'll tell you what, man, th- this is something that I didn't remember. So like there's the whole thing with these guys and they like do this whole thing where they because it happens to Van Damme in the movie where they string them up on this pirate ship and it it looks like they put them up on the cross. And it's like, yeah, when I seen that, I was like, because they show it enough times with enough different people in the movie where, you know, it's a pretty memorable image. But it's like, dude, I'm surprised that this wasn't way more controversial at the time, especially because you're talking around the time where The Last Temptation of Christ came out from Scorsese. Yeah, it's one of those ones that probably went under the radar, you know, if it was a bigger film, maybe. But being a canon and stuff, it's like the people seeing this are ones that don't get offended by it, you know? True. Very true. And especially as we keep saying all the time, pre-internet. I'll I'll throw this uh, at you, hate you, because I wanted to get this in because it was pretty crazy. It's something I stumbled upon through the power of the internet movie database, imdb.com. Did you know regarding Cyborg that Jean-Claude Van Damme accidentally wounded Jackson Rock Pinckney's eye during a sword fight scene in this movie, permanently blinding him in that eye. And he took Van Damme to court and eventually won a settlement. I did not know that. (laughs) So there you go. Van Damme's learning lessons early in this one. Like motherfucker. Dude. Okay. So, so check this out. I thought this was pretty interesting. I found this out. So, Uh, At the time, Canon Films were in pre-production for Masters of the Universe 2 and Spider-Man, two movies that they were going to shoot simultaneously under the direction of Albert Pune. 
uh, with sets built, costumes made, everything fell apart financially for both films, but Cannon needed to recoup the money spent somehow. Out of the ashes of those two movies became Cyborg, as Pune was deter determined to direct a movie and kind of utilize the sets and costumes and shit that they had for that Spider-Man movie and Masters of the Universe 2 that never actually happened. Wow. So isn't that I makes mean, a little more sense with the sets. And it kind of makes sense, too, that the script and everything is so fucking clunky. The movie, like, it's like they had no money. So, it, and the thing is, the the villain is cool. He's not really a good actor. And obviously, I'm not going to say that, that Van Damme is a good actor, and especially not in 1989. Um, but that's why they made the movie with all these unknowns. Uh, it was basically an effects movie, and it was done with sets and things like that in mind. So it's kind of where the good part of the movie lies. And it was just a salvage project by Pune himself that Canon Films allowed to release the movie. So it's, and again, dude, like we were talking about the video game stuff earlier. Like this is really like end of its era kind of shit. This is like Canon Films and like the stuff that Corman was doing towards the end of the drive-ins and shit in real time. Cause the drive-ins wouldn't really last in most places another 10 years from 89. Right. Yeah. Good calls. And dude, it was, it was killing me because we talked about on the show a bunch with, with us being pop culture nerds and self-proclaimed pop culture experts and things. It was killing me. The, the leader of the pirates, the main bad guy, the main villain protagonist in this uh, Fender Tremillo is his name and he's portrayed by uh, Vincent Klein. And I was just thinking like, where do I know him from? And I didn't want to IMDB it, but it was bothering me so much. I had to. Okay. And then of course, as soon as you bring it up, He's War Child in Point Break. Oh yeah, yep. When he gets into it with those surfers, I'm like, oh and yeah, dude, that's I knew I knew him from somewhere, you know. And he pretty much looks the same, like yeah. minus the except he has those blue, shit. yeah, and those blue bright blue eye like contacts he wears. Yeah, but I mean, you could pretty much tell that it's the same dude for sure. So yeah, it, it kind of shows you how like the character actor stuff would get people work you know, uh, around Hollywood. And I guarantee you that that's probably a good reason why he got cast in that was probably from being in this because he's one of the more memorable things in it. Exactly. It, it all goes around. So uh, do we have a, a tagline for this one, the Jay? Of course, Cyborg has a tagline. Hey, y'all, he's the first hero of the 21st century and he's our only hope. Cyborg, man, damage. So there you go. Uh, now, as we do here on the show, we go with the five-star rating scale. The J, what are you going to give Cyborg? No, two and a half for Cyborg. Hey, Same. And that's just basically for the salvage job that Albert Pune was, uh, was doing with this one. It's not one that I would really feel falls in the recommend category, even though it seems like the rating's not that bad. Because, dude, if you're not already a huge, even if you are a huge Van Damme fan, you're probably not going to be thrilled with this one. I think people that like Albert Pune and the whole canon thing will get a kick out of it. But most people, I don't think, would like this one. It's not really action-packed. You're not getting a whole lot out of it other than the people that fall into those kind of classifications that I'm talking about. Yeah, some of our checklist things uh, are uh, missed in this one. Although the the one uh, young lady does take off her robe to run into the, the water at one point, so you got a nice booty. 
in it. And then there was one one cool thing I wanted to, to shout out was uh, towards the end when Van Damme's running into the Pirates or catching up to them and he has to fight back. At one point, he does a split like in this kind of sewer area under the pirate ship, like where there's like all kinds of water. Yep. And he's like doing a split above a dude with, and, he, and he's holding a sword. And the dude at the last second realizes Van Damme's above him and looks up and he's like, ah, <laughs> and Van Damme just takes him out. <laughs> that was pretty cool. So shout out to the little bullet points I forgot that are positives. A, a nice ass and a nice split move from damage. So there you go. That's uh, Cyborg from 1989. So, guys, if you're a fan of Thursday Night Prime, I hope you listen during the show. because when It's a we, classic. Because when we tell you guys what's coming up next week, you're not going to want to miss this one. So we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, we're going to do the show wrap-up, and the Jay's going to give us the lowdown on some goofs. So stay tuned, guys. We'll be back right after this on the What's Real Podcast. Cut and Run Studios is a multimedia facility that specializes in video production and photography. In the internet era, visual communication is the most powerful tool for storytelling. We believe it is our job to deliver the most compelling visual interpretation of a message and provide all the necessary capabilities in-house so that we can cover every angle of your story. Our production facility is at 1532 Beachview Avenue, Pittsburgh, PA, 15216. Check us out at cutandrunstudios.com. Hey everybody, this is Herman James for the What's Real Podcast, and I'm here to just let you know to welcome you to Goofs or Goofs. And we're back, and it's that time once again. Yo, the J, what do we got this week on the Goof Front? 2021 Planet Earth Hate You, and episode 82 of the What's Real <laughs> Podcast means that there's still the waterfall of goof goofdom goofiness and goofs uh first up because <laughs> everything goofs. comes full circle with the podcast and we were talking about those sticky celebrities led by jake gillenhall himself well there was a follow-up article here because i had mentioned that one of those was also uh the ogs and they were saying cameron diaz and Matthew McConaughey, all right, all right, all right, himself, hadn't worn deodorant. Well, a follow-up article did come up, hey, so we had to throw that on 82's GRG as Matthew McConaughey hasn't worn deodorant in 30 years, but still smells great. According to who? (laughs) The the hygiene of certain celebrities has been a top of mind lately as we've been talking about. However, McConaughey's refusal to wear deodorant or cologne has apparently not affected the way he smells. Yvette Nicole Brown is who, hey Ed, who starred on the NBC sitcom Community and also co-starred with McConaughey in the 2008 comedy Tropic Thunder, said in a recent interview that he actually smells really pleasant. Brown said in the interview, according to BuzzFeed, quote, he does not have an odor. He smells like granola and good living. He has a sweet, sweet scent. That is just him, and it's not musty or crazy. The saga continues. He just, hey, yeah. he just smells like weed and granola. <laughs> yeah, he smells like... That's why everybody's like, hey, man, it's cool. It's, he smells great. Yeah, he smells like granola, pine cones, and farts. And Muggs are like, well, I mean, I guess it's not horrible. Like motherfucker, I smell like fucking Versace cologne. Like, <laughs> yeah. It's like what what is happening in the world? Uh, that's the question I was going to ask next. So I'm glad you brought up that segue. Hey, yep, because uh, there's an article here on CNN Health talking about the pandemic and why sexual activity took a pandemic hit and what to do about it. Uh, like that's what made me interested in this article. Hey, yep, because 
like any normal person might think. When COVID-19 first hit, you, you'd think you would stop getting inquiries as a doctor that's like a sex therapist from getting new patients for sex therapy because you would be like, finally, people were having sex. None of the old excuses like working late, dinner obligations, a rough commute to get in the way, and with nothing else to do on a Friday date night, why not fuck? But boy, were the sex therapists wrong <laughs> because human libidos seem to be like the stock market. And at a high level, they go up or down. But when you look closely, there are numerous factors, physical and psychological, affecting fluctuations. And in the age of COVID-19, we're exercising less, eating more, drinking and smoking and vaping to escape the anxiety, all of which affect our sexual health and self-esteem. Hey, y'all. <laughs> Basically, everybody was just locked down with the same people. And they're like, I'm good. Yeah. Like That's maybe cool. we'll fuck Thursday. <laughs> it's like Monday. It's like, maybe not. I don't know. It depends on what I have going on, which is going to be nothing, but it's just going to depend on how I feel that day. Other research found that the effects of forced prolonged cohabitation during the lockdown led partners to turn to more masturbation and porn use and less sex with each other. <laughs> so, yeah, so like nobody wants to fuck, but everybody's upstairs fucking wanking one out real quick at the same time. Like, oh, I'm not in the mood. I'm going to read a book. And then they're like, Ugh. all right, my book was boring. I'm back. What are we watching? Se season five of The Sopranos or what? Once again, what we call here at the Woods World Podcast, the Jace, Jake, Jake the Snake effect, where it's like, honey, I was <laughs> I was just stroking my dick to 17 women that were banging fucking dolphins. Like, and you want me to just bang you missionary? It ain't happening. <laughs> Jesus Jake Christ. The snake theory. <laughs> Jesus Christ, this pandemic, man. But yeah, hopefully we can get back to normal fucking is is the lesson learned in this <laughs> that's never gonna happen next up because we love our animals here on what's real and goose or goose <laughs> another alligator attack hey you know, as a handler got bitten at the at the zoo on job as guests jump in to save her uh this all went down uh let's see it was uh missing the, the place it was at here. I'll, I'll throw you the, I'll throw you the story though. Hey, Ed. an alligator handler got wrangled in by the creature. She was hired to control, but before things turned deadly, some on the spot heroics <laughs> by zoo guests saved the day. And here it is an unidentified employee of scales and tails, Utah. Hey, yeah, was in charge of showing off one of the facility's gators to paying customers, but got ensnared in the animal's teeth as it clamped down on her hand and barrel rolled her. It was a freaky scene, and she looked like she was about to become alligator food right there in front of horrified zoo-goers until our hero in the story, Donnie Wiseman, literally threw himself into the mix, jumping on the gator's back, fortunately able to get it to stop rolling, and then the handler instructed him what to do next. Sounded like she was taking steps to prevent herself from having a panic attack, and finally, the gator loosened up its grip, and another guest pulled her to safety. Thank God for our hero, wise man. Oh, that's that's amazing. Unbelievable, amazing. man. I, Jesus Christ. I mean, we talk about on the show, we've <sighs> had people survive getting swallowed whole by humpback whales, attacked by alligators. I mean, unbelievable. But shout out to Donnie Wiseman. Good shit, man. Just jumping on a fucking alligator. God damn. Donnie, Donnie Wiseman. Yeah, following last week's Swordsman. 
So you got what I was putting. We're all up in it. Full circle as always. Uh, Next to last up here, hey eel is. uh, I just thought this was funny because I don't. Did you hear about this one where the dude was trolling a rod? No, I didn't. So this will be great. Yeah, somebody somebody sent a bunch of pizzas from this pizza joint to Alex Rodriguez, but they said it was from Ben Affleck. But they didn't spell it fully. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's like Ben Ben Affleck. Yeah, it's like you know, it's there was no K. Uh, but yeah, it said A Rod chicken pizzas. I didn't order these. Turns out, quote unquote, Ben did. But uh, as it states, Jennifer Lopez is at the center of a pretty cheesy war. Puns there, hate you, <laughs> between current boyfriend and ex fiance Alex Rodriguez, who got trolled with the symbolic chicken pizza order. And uh, a certain someone named Ben hit up the Florida-based online pizza joint Bulls, Bears, and Squares and plunked down 141.32 to send some pies to A-Rod back on June 17th. It's unclear how many pizzas were ordered, but the joint's owner, Sam Tadros, confirms the only topping requested was chicken. (laughs) So he, uh, you know, was getting trolled with somebody calling him chicken. So I guess he didn't turn into uh, Michael J. Fox, Marty McFly from Back to the Future. Nobody sends me chicken pizzas. I just like it how, like, dude, that's how how great your life is when you're a rod. That people troll you by sending you a bunch of free fucking one hundred and fifty dollars worth of pizza. He's like, thanks. It's like, oh, you son of a bitch. Like, yeah, like if someone was trolling you, they'd like light your fucking car on fire. Yeah, they're like throwing flaming (laughs) shit at my windows. (laughs) You know. A-Rod's like, oh, my life is so hard. All these free pizzas. <laughs> and again, full circle, another uh, goose or goose alum topic here as Boston Dynamics, a video I sent you, hey, uh, revealed a video of two of their Atlas robots now completing a full-blown complex obstacle course that requires leaps, vaults, and some backflips for good measure. And no, Boston Dynamics isn't affiliated with Skynet, probably. And if you watch this, yeah, folks, it's the, the robots are just on another level right now. Yeah, we're fucked. We're definitely fucked. There's a, no way. This thing's more agile than 87% of all people on Earth. Yeah, you guys got to check this out. It was posted by IGN, but, you know, Boston Dynamics latest uh, video. But it's, uh, as we stated, full-blown obstacle course in two goddamn real-life Atlas robots complete the whole thing flipping leaping vaulting back flipping and uh yeah once again our our local prophet james cameron himself predicting the forthcoming of skynet itself and it's right around the corner as we're still in the middle of a goddamn real life pandemic as well fucking 2021 man robots flipping pandemics mugs are beating their dicks instead of fucking like what's going on hey y'all the, it's the end of the world as we know it. <laughs> yes, it is. And as I say to my bro from another mo, between alligators attacking mugs and rolling them and getting saved by zoo goers, to McConaughey somehow smelling good instead of smelling like complete poop, to A Rod getting trolled with chicken pizza, to no sex during the pandemic, and to Boston Dynamics becoming the new Skynet, goofs are goofs. So that is for that is it for us here. Easy for me to say. On episode 
82 of the What's Real podcast. If you guys are listening on iTunes, uh, please give us a five-star review. Helps out the show, so please do it. Thank you. Uh, Of course, you can listen to us each and every week on all your favorite podcasting platforms, such as Apple iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, Google Podcasts, and of course, each and every week on churchillpictures.com. So we are about out of here, but before we get out of here, I hear the J revving it up. So the J... Take it away. Revving it up like an Atlas robot fucking your wife because you're too tuckered out for masturbating. Hey, you know. Uh, feeling good as always, man. It's been a blast. Always love spending my Tuesday nights with you. Hope the peeps, as always, are enjoying the ride of the What's Real podcast, man. We have a blast. Cover a lot of ground, and it's a lot of fun. Uh, as I always say, love the show. Our weekly shout-out to the wizard behind the boards, our man Cam, our producer. That 16K is as crystal clear as ever. Cam, keep doing your thing. We love it. Good shit, always. And as I've been stating, I'll just go with it, leading the charge from Hate You like Journal Custer in his prime before he got slaughtered. Stay safe. Stay healthy. (laughs) You'll hear the J next week. So that is it for us here this week on episode 82. Shout out to you, the J, for sitting down with me here each and every week as we do. There's nobody else I'd rather do it with, brother. So thank you for that. And of course, uh, to our producer, Cam, you're the greatest, brother. Appreciate all the hard work you put into the show each and every week to make us sound so good. And we all know that nobody beats the whiz. So that is it for us here on episode 82. Don't forget to join us next week for episode 83 and much, much fuckery. Uh, that's it. So stay safe, stay healthy, get vaccinated, and we'll see you right here next week on the What's Real podcast. What's real? What's real?